Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Pabby. And I'm Trisha. This week we come to the end of Season 8 with The Demons. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the Companions and the Villains and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. That's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P. Or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Now, though, given the fact that it is the spooky season, I think I shall give you the summary for the demons. Demons. <laughs> We're going to get into this as the story goes out. <laughs> Whoever, whichever, one has, whichever one of us has the last word on the, this episode is the correct person. <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> episode one. On a stormy night in the village of Devil's End in the Wiltshire countryside, a man and his dog are the last patrons to leave the Cloven Hoof pub. As they are passing the church, the dog pulls free of his leash and runs into the graveyard. The man follows after it and he hears the sounds of its anguished yelps, forcing him to run further into the graveyard. He then sees something that fills him with fear and causes him to collapse to the ground. The following morning, his body is discovered and the village doctor, Dr. Reeves, says he died of heart failure. However, Mrs. Hawthorne, the local village mystic, says that the man died of fright and it has something to do with an excavation taking place at the Barrow Mound on the outskirts of the village. Reeves drives off to complete his rounds, paying no attention to her ominous warnings. At the Barrow, the excavation is actually being filmed for a television broadcast. Meanwhile, at the unit motor pool, the doctor is working on Bessie and debating Joe on the existence of the supernatural. He insists that everything has a scientific explanation, and as they are talking, Bessie moves off by herself. Joe is stunned by this, and the doctor gives out to the car, which honks an apology. Yates arrives and is baffled by the scene, and the doctor initially teases Joe by saying that it was magic, but then reveals that he did the whole stunt via remote control. Joe chides him for his trickery, and then asks Yates for a lift so that she can see the broadcast. Yates asks the doctor if he wants to watch it as well, as the opening of the barrow is meant to bring about the destruction of the world. The doctor initially refuses, saying that he has no time for such nonsense, but changes his mind when Yates mentions the name of the village. In an underground chamber beneath the church at Devil's End, reporter Alistair Fergus is giving a brief history of the occult practices that occurred in the area throughout the years. He then moves to the dig site, which is called the Devil's Hump, and explains that Professor Horner and his team have been working together throughout the day to get into the interior of the barrow. He reveals that previous archaeological digs have been struck by misfortune and death. He begins to state that another live broadcast will take place at midnight to show Horner and his team entering the barrow interior. Horner, a plain-speaking man who seems to despise the pageantry of the broadcast, tells the camera crew to follow him into the tunnel and says that at midnight he'll break the seal in the barrel wall. He informs those watching that he expects to find the burial chamber of a great pagan chieftain and his treasure hoard. When Fergus asks why he wishes to enter the barrow at midnight, Horner says that midnight will be April 30th, which begins the pagan festival of Beltane, the summer equivalent of Halloween. He reveals that his latest book is being released in the morning and that the midnight opening is a publicity stunt to increase book sales. Back at Unit HQ, the Doctor, who has been watching the broadcast with Joe, Yates and Benton, seems perturbed by these revelations but can't figure out why. Benton brings his attention back to the broadcast as Mrs. Hawthorne has arrived. She says that her practices in white witchcraft have warned her of the danger of opening the barrel, but Fergus and Horner scoff at this. She says an ancient rhyme and predicts the arrival of Satan if the barrel is open. The doctor tells Joe to come with him as they need to get to Devil's End to stop the dig. At the Cloven Hoof, the locals have stopped watching the broadcast and one of them, Squire with Stanley, 
expresses his admiration for Mrs. Hawthorne, but Bert, the owner of the pub, and Gerton, one of his regulars, say that she must be locked away. When Stanley talks about the strange phenomena that have happened lately, such as the freak wind and rainstorms, animals not producing, and the death of the men in the churchyard. Gerton attributes these to the usual seasonal weather, and Bert lightens the mood by saying that he'll give his best room to Satan if he does turn up at midnight as a thank you for the tourist trade he's brought to the area. Mrs. Hawthorne is making her way back to the village and is greeted by the local constable, and she tells him she intends to go back to the dig site at midnight. A freak wind blows up and Mrs. Hawthorne speaks a spell to calm it down. Unbeknownst to her, the constable has picked up a rock to hit her with, but stops in confusion when the wind dies down. She makes sure he is okay before departing, not paying attention to the rock still in his hand. At that same point in time, the wind forces the arms on a junction sign to rotate just as the doctor and Joe are approaching, forcing them to go in the wrong direction. Mrs. Hawthorne continues her walk to the church and encounters the verger Garvin. She demands to be put in contact with the vicar and not the man who was recently sent to replace him. Garvin says that the previous vicar is uncontactable due to a sudden illness and his replacement, Vicar Magister, is not available. Mrs. Hawthorne tries to push her way past him, but before things escalate further, Magister arrives. Unbeknownst to her, Magister is actually the master. She asks him to stop Horner from entering the barrel, but when he tries to use his hypnotic abilities to dissuade her, she storms off, saying that she will find help elsewhere. Frustrated, the master sends Garvin after her. At Unit HQ, the Brigadier has left Yates in charge whilst he attends a formal function. Benton is watching a rugby match on television, but Yates tells him to switch the channel over in preparation for the dig, but he too gets caught up in the action of the match. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Joe eventually arrive at the Clovenhoof and ask for directions to the dig site. The locals make fun of him due to his appearance and take him for a friend of Mrs. Hawthorne when he mentions the devastation about to be unleashed. The Doctor's frustration nearly gets the better of him, but Joe intervenes and her pleasant demeanour wins over Win Stanley, who gives them directions. However, once they leave, Gerton goes to speak to the Master and tells him about their arrival. The Master thanks him, but then tells him to prepare for the ceremony, and once he is gone, he dons an ornate red robe before descending into the chamber beneath the church, where other figures in black robes are also in attendance. He then begins an occult ceremony to summon a demonic entity called Azal. While this is going on, the Doctor and Joe rush to the dig site and are forced to abandon their car as a tree falls on the road. They run the rest of the way and the Doctor doesn't notice Joe fall behind and he keeps going. He rushes into the barrow to stop Horner from breaking the seal but he is too late and a hurricane wind erupts from the barrow and wreaks havoc on the television equipment outside. Underneath the chamber, the wind blows strongly causing the Master to laugh maniacally as one of the cultists points to a stone gargoyle which has suddenly come to life. Back at the dig site, Joe staggers against the wind into the barrow where she sees Horner and the Doctor unconscious on the ground and watches in fear as the roof caves in on them. Episode 2 At Unit HQ, Yates switches the channel and the feedback from one of the overturned cameras shows Joe trying to dig the Doctor out of the rubble. The feed then disappears as a technical fault message appears on screen and Yates tells Benton to contact the BBC for an update while he contacts the Brigadier. However, both calls yield no results and Yates says he has tended to go to Devil's End himself to find out what is going on. Underneath the church, the Master proclaims the ceremony to be a success and dismisses the cultists and tells them to wait his instructions. Meanwhile, the Doctor, who is covered in ice crystals and frozen solid, is brought to the cloven hoof to be examined by Dr. Reeves, who sadly pronounces both him and Horner dead. Joe refuses to believe this and when Stanley comforts her. However, Reeves detects a faint pulse and then comments on what appears to be the Doctor's double heartbeat, assuming it to be an echo from his sternum. 
He calls for blankets to keep him warm, and Joe uses the phone to contact Unit HQ and inform Yates about the doctor's condition. Yates says that they will arrive in the morning, but someone cuts the phone line, ending the call. Back at the barrow, the constable is on guard as the television crew leave the scene, but he does not notice a pair of glowing red eyes observing him from the tunnel entrance. The following morning, the master enters the underground chamber and begins to pray at the occult altar, and back at the barrow, the ground shakes as a large shadow falls over the constable. Smiling to himself, the master then leaves the chamber. Yates and Benton, wearing civilian clothing so as not to cause alarm, arrive via helicopter, and as they are landing, they notice a trail of enormous hoofprints making their way across the countryside. They touch down in a field to examine the hoofprints, which are actually burnt into the ground. Yates says that they will have to investigate later, and they go back into the helicopter to fly on to Devil's End. They are greeted by Joe, who says the doctor is still unconscious. They ask her about the quietness in the village, and Joe says that there is a strange atmosphere in the whole area. Benton decides to go back to check on the hoofprints, and reminds Yates to contact the brigadier. At that moment, the brigadier is trying to reach them at the HQ, and is stunned to hear that they have taken the helicopter to Devil's End. He summons his car and tells the radio operator to inform Benton and Yates to stay put until he arrives. As Benton is making his way back to the tracks, he hears someone calling for help from the church. He goes inside to investigate and finds Mrs. Hawthorne tied up in a chest. She reveals that Garvin kidnapped her and she tells him that they need to get to safety. However, they spot Garvin coming up the pathway to the church and she leads Benton down into the underground chamber. Immediately she notices that the gargoyle is missing, but they are forced to take cover as Garvin enters the chamber. He leaves again and Mrs. Hawthorne notices the remains of the ceremony from the previous night and says that Magister is the one behind it, saying that the name is the title given to the leader of a witch's coven. Garvin suddenly appears again wielding a shotgun, but Benton tries to take it from him and a struggle ensues. During the struggle, Benton accidentally steps on a pagan symbol on the ground that the Master had earlier revealed and he is suddenly racked with pain before being pulled to safety by Mrs. Hawthorne. Garvin retrieves the gun and forces Mrs. Hawthorne to carry the unconscious Benton back up to the church. Once they go outside, they are assaulted by a strange force which summons up a strong wind and intense heat. Mrs. Hawthorne carries Benton away as Garvin fires his shotgun at something above them. He suddenly bursts into flames as the entity enters the church and stops the symbol on the chamber floor. In the cloven hoof, Joe and Yates are thrown to the ground and when the wind and heat dissipate, the doctor wakes up and exclaims Eureka. In the chamber, the master looks up at the entity and welcomes it as Azal. The doctor gets dressed and makes his way downstairs, telling Joe and Yates that he is fine and that he needs to go back to the barrow as he is almost certain as to what it is that is the cause of recent events. However, before they can leave, Mrs. Hawthorne enters carrying Benton and asks for assistance with him. Their arrival and the doctor's awakening are reported to the master by Bert, who is a member of the coven. The master tells him to keep an eye on them and he will deal with them later. Mrs. Hawthorne tells them about what she saw at the churchyard and says that it is Satan, describing him as nearly 30 foot tall with horns and a terrible looking face. The doctor, initially having agreed with her that something terrible is happening at the barrow, sceptically tells her that it wasn't Satan that she saw. She tells him about what she saw in the chamber and mentions about Magister being the head of the coven. The doctor realises that Magister is the master as it is the Latin variation of his fellow Time Lord's name. On the outskirts of the village, the wind and heat force an approaching van off the road and the driver jumps clear moments before the van blows up. Later, he flags out an approaching car, which happens to be the Brigadier's, and tells him about what happened to his van. The Brigadier uses his swagger stick to point in the direction of Devil's End and the end of it suddenly bursts into flames, leading the Brigadier to discover that there is a heat barrier around the village.
The Brigadier then calls through to Yates, who fills him on everything and informs him that the Doctor and Joe have gone back to the barrow. At the barrow, the Doctor and Joe discover the constable's body and together they proceed down the tunnel. Unbeknownst to them, they are being observed by the gargoyle, which follows them into the barrow. Inside, the Doctor uncovers what appears to be a miniature spaceship, and when Joe tries to lift it, he says that it weighs in excess of 750 tons. He begins to explain its presence in the barrow, but they are suddenly attacked by the gargoyle. Episode 3 The Doctor picks up a digging trowel and utters a strange phrase which seems to stun the gargoyle. The Master senses the reluctance of the gargoyle, who he calls Bach, and orders it to return to him. Once Bach leaves, the Doctor tells Joe that the gargoyle was repelled by the iron in the trowel, saying that the creature's belief in magic rendered it weak to the metal. When asked about the phrase he said, he reveals that it was the opening line of a Venusian lullaby. He says that whatever Mrs. Hawthorne saw is far more deadly than the gargoyle, but repeats that it is not Satan. They go back to the cloven hoof, and at the doctor's request, Mrs. Hawthorne brings all the books and documents she has on the occult. He insists to the others that they are not dealing with the supernatural, and Joe takes his side to help convince the others by saying that they need to know what they are fighting. Before the doctor can speak, Yates gets a call from the brigadier, who informs him about being kept out by the heat barrier. He says that the barrier is 10 miles in diameter and at least one mile high, and the centre of it seems to be coming from the church. The doctor frustratedly says that not only is the brigadier locked out, but they are also locked inside with whatever is controlling the barrier. The call ends and the doctor uses a slide projector to explain what is going on. He shows a series of mythological deities and creatures from around the world, all of which have horns. He says that they are actually aliens called Daemons from the planet Deimos, a planet on the far side of the galaxy, and since their arrival over 100,000 years ago, man has treated or worshipped them as gods and devils. He explains that the ship that they found in the barrel was originally much larger, but the Daemons have the ability to manipulate the size of the ship as well as their own size. He says the cause of the intense heat waves and cold snaps are due to the energy dispersal caused by the changes. Benton asks why they're on Earth, and the Doctor says that they have had a hand in or inspired every major change in human civilization, from the rise of Homo sapien to the start of the Renaissance era to the Industrial Revolution. Joe and Mrs. Hawthorne ask why they are so linked with black magic, and the Doctor says that that is how their science and technology is perceived. He says that they aren't necessarily evil, but that the advances that they have helped humanity with have always been on their terms. He says the fact that the Master seemingly is in contact with one is a cause for great alarm, as if the daemon chooses not to align with him, then it could very easily destroy the world. He says that the daemon will appear three times, and on the third occasion he will reveal what fate he has chosen for Earth. Benton says that they should go to the church to find it, but the doctor says that due to the current change in atmosphere, the daemon is probably so small that it would be nearly invisible to their eyes. They then get another call from the brigadier, who says he intends to lay an artillery bombardment to break the barrier. The Doctor tells him that it won't work as it will only strengthen the barrier and antagonise the daemon. The Doctor relays instructions to him and the unit technical sergeant, Osgood, for a device which he wants them to build, but the science goes over their heads and so the Doctor says he will greet them by the barrier to help them. He leaves Benton and Yates behind to keep an eye on things and he brings Joe with him, chiding her when she gives out about the Brigadier's plan. As this is happening, the Master is talking with Win Stanley at the vicarage and gives him a demonstration of the power he now controls by summoning a wind and convinces the squire to join the cult. Win Stanley then calls a town meeting to discuss the recent events. He hands the meeting over to the master who starts to reveal all the dirty little secrets of the locals. He then says that if they obey him he will grant them their fondest desires. 
Bert arrives and reveals what the doctor is doing, and the master gives him and Gerton instructions and they depart. He then goes back to addressing the crowd, but they turn against him when he becomes more insistent on their obedience. When Stanley tries to lead the crowd away, but the master summons Bach, who blasts him into nothingness. The master then restarts his control over the crowd and tells them to go about their normal business and prepare for the May Day celebrations. Meanwhile, Gerton has gone to try and take the unit helicopter, but he is spotted by Yates, who tries to stop him. He seems impervious to Yates's punches and stuns him long enough to take off in the helicopter. Yates takes off in pursuit on a motorcycle. Gerton takes the helicopter and uses it to chase the Doctor and Joe. Yates catches up to them and tells them about Gerton, and the Doctor says that he is most likely possessed. Gerton pursues them down the road, and the Doctor realises that he's forcing them towards the heat barrier. At the last moment, the Doctor swerves Bessie off the road, but Joe falls out and then gets knocked out when she hits the ground. Gerton, unable to change the direction, flies straight into the heat barrier and explodes. The Master sees the smoke from the church and gleefully assumes the Doctor has died. The Doctor tells Yates to take Joe back to the Cloven Hoof and Bessie whilst he goes to speak to the Brigadier. He tells the Brigadier and Osgood what they will need to do to break the barrier. In the Cloven Hoof, a semi-conscious Joe insists that they should go into the underground chamber to stop the Master, but she is given a sedative by Dr. Reeves to calm her down. At that exact moment, the Master is summoning Azal again, and it grows in height, towering above him. The energy dispersal causes powerful tremors to run through the village all the way out to the heat barrier. The Master orders Azal to stay back as it starts to advance on him. Episode 4 The Master picks up an iron candle pole and uses it to keep Azal at bay. Meanwhile, at the Cloven Hoof, Joe is awakened by the tremors and sneaks out of her room, using an abandoned ladder to climb down to the street so she can make her way to the underground chamber. Out at the heat barrier, Sergeant Osgood and his men struggle to keep up with the doctor's instructions. The brigadier informs him that he has arranged for a controlled power surge from the National Power Complex to travel along the nearby electrical power lines that they have tapped into. Azal, towering over the master, demands to know why he has been summoned, and the master asks to be given the power to conquer and control the earth. Azal informs him that he has sensed the Doctor, revealing that he is still alive, and demands to speak to him first. The Master refuses, but Azal says that he is not his slave and can destroy the Time Lord if he so wishes. The Master puts forward his request again, this time more humbly, and Azal says that he will consider it. Azal says that he is the last of his kind and will only appear once more to render his decision to the Master, warning him that if he is not worthy, that he will destroy the world using Atlantis as an example of his destructive capabilities. The Master flees the chamber as Azal shrinks in size again, which causes another energy dispersal that throws Joe to the ground as she approaches the church. The tremor is felt again at the heat barrier, and the Doctor leaves Osgood in charge of activating the surge device whilst he goes back to the village. Yates goes to check on Joe and discovers that she has gone missing. He tells Benton and Mrs Hawthorne and says that she has most likely gone to the underground chamber and he decides to go look for her. As he makes his way to the church, he spots Bert, who has just come back from a meeting with the Master about the encounter with Azal, and has been given instructions to eliminate the Doctor. Yates waits till he is gone and enters the church. Joe regains consciousness and enters the church shortly after him, and finds him in the underground chamber. Yates tells her to be careful as the chamber is filled with booby traps, and he triggers one as an example. They are forced into hiding when one of the covered enters the chamber to prepare for the next ceremony. He tells Joe not to worry, as the Doctor will be back soon, and Benton knows where they are. Unfortunately, at that time, the Doctor is on his way back to the village on a motorcycle, but he is shot at by Bert, who has been lying in wait for him. He crashes the bike and carries on to the village on foot. 
Bert returns to the vicarage and informs the master, who tells him to arrange a welcome for the doctor. Meanwhile, Benton has managed to get through to the brigadier, but informs him that the doctor hasn't returned yet. The brigadier says that he may have had an accident on the motorcycle, but tells Benton to wait a while before looking for him in case he is just delayed. Benton signs off and voices his frustration that everyone seems to have gone missing. He decides to go look for Joe and Yates and turns down Mrs. Hawthorne's offer to go look for them instead. They suddenly hear sounds from outside and they take a look out the window. They see several villagers following a group of Morris dancers as they make their way towards a maypole on the village green, and Mrs. Hawthorne says it is a village tradition. Benton then spots the doctor approaching the pub. The doctor tries to make his way across the green, but he's encircled by the Morris dancers, who discreetly hold him captive as Bert threatens him with a gun. He is then tied to the maypole. Benton prepares to go and help him, but he's attacked by one of the Morris dancers. The dancer manages to get the upper hand thanks to his club, but Mrs. Hawthorne knocks him out using her bag, which has contained her crystal wall. Back at the maypole, the doctor tries to get through to the villagers, but Bert convinces them that the doctor is a witch and needs to be burned to death. As they prepare to light the pyre, Mrs. Hawthorne rushes out onto the green and proclaims that the Doctor is actually a powerful white magician who will deliver them from the evil of the Master. The Doctor plays along with the ruse and demonstrates his power by using Mrs. Hawthorne's suggestion to shatter a nearby street lamp. He gives the command and the lamp explodes. He gives a further demonstration and commands the weather vane on the top of the church tower to move, which it does. The crowd stand back in amazement, completely unaware that Benton has been using his pistols to snipe the targets. Burke prepares to shoot him and stands in front of a few villagers, blocking Benton from getting a clear line of sight. The doctor gives another demonstration by summoning Bessie, which knocks Burke to the ground, pinning him there. He tries to get away when Mrs. Hawthorne starts to release the doctor, now that the villagers stand in awe of him, but he is tackled by Benton. In the underground chamber, the master begins the ceremony to summon Azal, this time accompanied by the entire coven. He prepares to sacrifice a chicken, which causes Joe to rush out in an attempt to stop him. The master says that she is too late as Azal appears and grows to the height of the chamber. Joe looks on in horror at Azal's figure, which has goat-like legs, a hairy human torso, clawed hands, and an animalistic face with horns on his head. Episode 5 Yates and Joe try to make a break for it, but the master orders Bach to stop them. Yates shoots Bach, but his bullets have no effect on the gargoyle and they are soon recaptured, with Joe taken away to be offered as a sacrifice to Azal. Yates is taken away and tied up in the vestry. The energy dispersal caused by Azal's appearance throws everyone in the village to the ground. Once it has passed, the doctor tells everyone that they should be afraid of what is to come and reveals that neither he nor the master are magicians. Bert tries to turn the villagers against him, but they tell him to shut up so the doctor can speak. He tells everyone, including a disappointed Mrs. Hawthorne, that the, all the rituals of magic are used to harness the psionic forces required to summon Azal and his kind, who are drawn to the negative emotions of humanity. Benton says that they need to deal with Azal, but the doctor says their only hope lies in the machine that the Brigadier and Nazgut are building, which he says will also drain Azal's energy, making him easier to deal with. As they are speaking, Yates manages to break out of the church and rushes out to the green where he informs the doctor about Joe and Azal. The doctor calls the Brigadier and tells him that they need to break the barrier now, and also requests that a squad be sent to the barrow to monitor the ship inside it. Osgood, still not sure that it will work, starts to operate the machine. Back in the chamber, the master demands to be granted his request and offers Joe to Azal. One of the coven rushes in and alerts the master that the doctor is leading the villagers towards the church and he dispatches Bach to deal with them. 
The appearance of the gargoyle frightens the villagers, and Bert uses this as a chance to escape towards the church, but he is obliterated by Bach. The doctor tells everyone to stay back and radios the brigadier to use the machine's full power to break through the barrier. Osgood again voices his concerns, but the brigadier ignores him and throws the switch on the power booster. After a few moments, the barrier starts to weaken at one section, and the brigadier orders everyone through. He radios the doctor and informs him that they are en route, but the machine is still at the barrier. Before he can explain why, Benton points at Bach, who staggers in weakness due to the machine's effects on the barrier. In the chamber, Azal is suffering the same fate. Unfortunately, the machine overloads and blows up. With no other choice, the doctor uses Bach's moment of weakness to rush into the church, just managing to close the door as Bach shoots at him. He enters the chamber and is stunned by the sight of Azal before joining Joe and the Master. The doctor informs the Master that he is prepared to die to stop him, but, and the Master orders Azal to kill him. Azal refuses, curious as to the reason why the doctor has come even though he might die. The doctor says he wants to talk and asks for Joe to be let go, a request that Azal complies with by electrocuting the coven member holding her with lightning from his hands. The doctor tells Azal to leave Earth or he will destroy him with his machine. Azal calls his bluff by saying that he senses the destruction of the machine and sees through his lies about the existence of a second one. He prepares to kill the doctor, but again stops when he tells him that his fate is also connected to the doctor's life. The master again orders him to kill the doctor, but Azal says that he is not his servant and only awakened in order to determine Earth's fate. The master asks for the power to be given to him instead, claiming that he is the only one capable of leading humanity, which the doctor compares to the mentality of Hitler and Genghis Khan. The doctor asks Azal to leave, telling him that the knowledge his kind has given humanity has made them capable of destroying themselves and the world. Azal then deems humanity to be a failure, but the master says that they can be guided by a strong hand, and Azal agrees, but says that he's chosen the doctor to receive his power instead. The doctor, stunned by this, vehemently refuses the dubious honour. A brigadier arrives at the village green and prepares to raid the church, but Yates warns him about Bach, who is back to normal and guarding the entrance. He orders his men to fire on the gargoyle, but their weapons do not- nothing. Yates calls for a bazooka, and Benton goes to prepare it while a squad of troops are sent to flank around to the side of the church. Bach obliterates several of the flanking party before Benton blows into pieces with the bazooka. However, before he can be congratulated, Bach reassembles himself. In the chamber, Azal says that someone must take his power or he will destroy the earth, and he finally gives in to the master's requests. Stating that the doctor is a disruptive factor to the situation, Azal starts to electrocute him. Joe intervenes, begging for Azal to kill her instead of him. The selflessness of her action causes Azal to begin to phase in and out of existence, as he cannot comprehend the idea of self-sacrifice. He orders everyone to leave as he brings the chamber down around them. Outside, Bach goes back to his normal motionless state, and the unit troops watches the doctor, Joe, the master and the coven flee from the church. The doctor tells them all to take cover as the church blows up. Benton apprehends the master, and the doctor tells everyone that Joe's sacrifice saved them. They then hear the distant explosion of the ship in the barrel, and Yates is informed of the barrier's disappearance. The master distracts Benton by throwing his ceremonial robe over him and tries to escape with Bessie, but the doctor uses his remote control to bring the master back, where he is taken under heavy guard back to Unit HQ. With peace restored to the village, Mrs. Hawthorne takes Benton, the Doctor and Joe to the Maypole to begin the May Day celebrations, whilst the Brigadier and Yeats go to the Cloven Hoof for a pint. End of the story. So, 
now that we have dealt with the demons, we're going to go to go over to the tri- trivia spot to see what Trish has to say about this. Yeah, we we will talk about demons, demons, demons in a second. Uh, don't worry. <laughs> so the air date for this story was the twenty second of May to the nineteenth of June, nineteen seventy one. The credited writer that appears on screen for the story is Guy Leopold. Guy Leopold isn't an actual person. He doesn't exist. Barry Letts wanted to write a story based around the audition piece that he had used for the character of Joe. So there was something very similar in terms of theming and stuff Mm -hmm. in the audition piece used for Joe. But as we've discussed before, because he was the producer, he would need special permission from the BBC in order to write. And we've said before, they kind of gave him like one story a year. Mm-hmm. And anytime after that, he'd need to get permission from the BBC. Since he didn't want them to say no, <laughs> <laughs> he instead decided to collaborate on the project with Robert Sloman and then use the pseudonym of Guy Leopold. Guy being Robert Sloman's son and Leopold being Barry Letts' middle name. Mm. They would continue to collaborate on three more stories which are going to be the time monster the green death and planet of the spiders and if i'm right in thinking from memory the time monster actually deals with the, the destruction of atlantis i don't know because i haven't watched it yeah no I, I i'm pretty sure it does so and which is obviously as i said the only reason i'm mentioning it is because it's referenced in this story that yeah. the demons were responsible for it all i know about atlantis is that it's mentioned in that song the brig can't help you now he's in geneva <laughs> <laughs> The director for the story is Christopher Barry. This is Christopher's sixth Doctor Who directing credit. We previously saw his work in The Daleks, where he did episodes one, two, four, and five. Mm-hmm. The Rescue, The Romans, The Savages, and The Power of the Daleks. Christopher wasn't particularly keen on coming back to Who. He had taken a long break. Like, from Power of the Daleks to now, that's like, what, four years? Yeah, because, like, it's the entirety of Troughton's run. Yeah, and the first season of... First season and a half, really. Two seasons of John. Um, he didn't want to be so. He didn't want to be a Doctor Who director. Hmm. You know, someone who only does Doctor Who. He wanted to do less genre stuff. Mm-hmm. However, he did really like the script. He had an interest in archaeology himself, and he loved the sort of rural setting. And so he's like, do you know what? It's a damn good script. I'm gonna go give it a shot. He did come back several times after that as well. Um, he did The Mutants, Robot, The Brain of Morbius, where he actually appears on screen, and The Creature from the Pit. I know that he said that he didn't want to be like a genre-related director. Mm. But to be fair, that filmography is very varied in tone. Well, yeah, but to other external parties, it's all Doctor Who. Like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, But I'm just talking in terms of skill set, you know, like, you know, directing like a historical period piece. Uh, directing a sci-fi variation directing of the the pseudo-historicals like so there's a lot of good stuff there I think there is yeah but I imagine from an outside perspective like when you're going for jobs it's all Doctor Who all the way down absolutely and I suppose if people aren't really into science fiction like they're they're just going to see Doctor Who and they're not going to really pay attention to the nuance of the different stories yeah so Barry actually Barry Letts that is said he actually would have liked to have directed this story himself because he would love to direct a story he himself had written. Hmm. Didn't get the opportunity this time around. He will, though, with Planet of the Spiders, which we'll be doing in many weeks from now. Yeah. So, the title. The working title for this story is The Demons, spelled D-E-M-O-N-S. The change to the ash glyph, the A-E, that's pulled together, 
okay. was made by Christopher Barry because he thought it looked more old and a bit more satanic and ritualistic. Mm. It was purely aesthetic. Now, in the story, the first time the Doctor refers to Azal's species, yeah. he says daemons mm-hmm. from Deimos. Yeah. Yet the Doctor himself, along with every other character for the rest of the story, calls him a says, demon. Demons. Now, yeah. you and I have a friend, named Vicky. Hi, Vicky. Nice. Um, who studied Old English at college. She has developed a website where you can go and find out how all these Old English letters are pronounced. Mm. And so I found her. Well, I'd say I found her website. I asked Vicky. Um, and she sent me on a link to her website where this A-E squished together sound has an A sound, as in mat, mm-hmm. which would make it the Damons. But then I was messaging her early ago and there's a lot of different pronunciations. So you have Latin and Old English. So Old English is the ah sound. That's a more Germanic language sound, apparently, is the ah sound. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the modern English e sound. Mm -hmm. So demons. But then there's also the Latin sound, which is more of an a sound. So daemons so daemons mm. daemons demons mm. there's a lot of it um point being i was willing to set all this aside as soon as i realized it was purely an aesthetic thing mm-hmm. until the doctor pronounced it two ways yeah because like oh whatever the doctor says Is that's what we'll go with but he does both mm-hmm. fucker <laughs> um so yeah it depends on if you're going with old is it meant to be an old english word in which case it would be damons. Is it meant to be a Latin word, which would be closer to daemons? Is it meant to be a modern English word, which would be closer to demons? Yeah, because like, at one point I thought, like, you know, when he said the planet Deimos, I thought of the moon Deimos, you know, yeah. one of Mars's moons, which is like in uh, Greek mythology, he's one of Ares' sons. And mm. he's like, I think he's the personification of fear on the battlefield. Something like that, yeah, I think. Yeah, so like, I thought like that would have kind of maybe, maybe that's what they were going for, but no, it's like Daemons for da- from Demos. Or from Demos. Yeah, basically, <laughs> the title is Demons. Cool. I, but I they th- wanted to look cool, so they put in the little funny A. Yeah. <laughs> and now I've spent about five minutes talking through an entire conversation back and forth that me and Vicky had on Facebook. Yeah. Where I was trying to get it figured out. Moving on from the pronunciation of the word. Um... What do you want to go with for the rest of us? <laughs> How about like, Azal's species? No, because that's stupid. Okay, fair enough. Um, like, do you want Permit to, go- to one. <laughs> Will we just go with the demons? Cool, demons it is. So, the filming location for this was the village of Allborn, which yeah. is in Wilshire. There is no mention that this village of Devil's End is in Wilshire. However, there is a reference made to it in episode one where they talk about the third Lord Alburn. It's sort of a nice hint to where they filmed the story. Um, a lot of the um, residents of that village actually did appear in the episode. There were a lot of the extras during like the Morris dancing and stuff. Mm. The scene where like you know, the woman pulls the little girl inside and another woman's yeah. like closing the windows. Those are all residents of um, Alburn. We have another exploding helicopter. Kind of. It's the same exploding helicopter. That we saw in The Enemy of the World. Yeah. Which is an unused shot from, from Russia with Love. Same helicopter. Second story. 
so the demons demonic ritualistic things summoning the devil and what have you Mm -hmm. so the area beneath the church is referred to as the cavern even though christopher barry is like there's no it doesn't look like a cavern it looks like a crypt (laughs) it looks like a crypt the bbc wouldn't let them use the word crypt in case they you know offended viewers with religious sensibilities Mm. that was also why god is never mentioned because it's considered blasphemous. Although you can mention the devil and like fallen angel and all that kind of stuff as much as you want. You can't say God. The chant that the master uses to summon Azal is Mary had a little lamb backwards. What is it with fucking Barry's obsession with that fucking song? Because I know, I know that Barry had nothing to do with the toe connection. But yeah. he, like, but Barry was a Buddhist, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Yeah, and like, there's a Buddhist connection to that. Well, didn't and... Barry write the Tao connection? I know he didn't did. We say that before. I don't. Know, I don't know if we said that he wrote it or if he. I I up. I think Barry. Yeah, because Barry, th- th- if he does, then that also adds the credence to my fucking thing because that's what you know. I can't remember his name, but you know, Sweet Ron, dude. Um, yeah, that's what he says as part of his fucking spell. Uh, where is it where is it where is it writer Barry Letts yeah it is Barry Barry just likes Mary as little lamb okay, okay. so to, to all listeners beware beware the, the, the rhyme Mary had a little lamb because it is now a satanic and fucking both overtones. forwards and backwards yes <laughs> overtones that incantation was originally going to be the Lord's Prayer backwards hmm. but the BBC said uh-uh. yeah I, I can imagine what did you think of the blowing up of the church? I thought it was pretty fucking cool. People thought they actually destroyed the church. And there was lots of complaints received by the BBC. <laughs> they didn't blow up a church. It was a model. It was a very good model, though. This is like, um, oh, was this London Rail giving out about, like, <laughs> the, the underground the, the, web, the web of fear. Um, some more satanic stuff. So... Uh, on the signpost that points to Devil's End, you'll see that there's another village called Satan Hall, <laughs> which I just think is great. <laughs> um, something I didn't know. This is the only story to end on a cliffhanger where the master is in danger. Yeah, because like every time after this, like I know that Roger has another couple of appearances, mm. but I'm very hazy in terms of like cliffhangers involving the master. So yeah, apparently I, there's none. <laughs> Yeah. And like it's a it's a great scene. I love it. Mm, very good. Obviously, the master wears his ceremonial robe. Mm-hmm. It has symbols on the outside, which are from a 16th century occult alphabet known as Theban. And guess what it translates to? Master, because <laughs> just write your name on your clothes. Is oh. it in case he gets like he misplaces it? Yeah, pretty much. You, know, you have your name stitched inside your clothes, despite the fact that it's the only fucking red cape. <laughs> Uh, Miss Hawthorne calls the doctor the great wizard Quiquequad, which are all different versions of Latin for the word who. <laughs> so the great wizard who 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 is essentially what she was calling him. I don't know why she didn't just pick one. <laughs> she went with three. Um, what is the best line from this story? I'm torn. 
But uh, you know what I mean, though. What yeah, is the best line? Yeah, it's uh, what was it? Um, I can't remember the, the private's name, but like when he Jenkins. tells Jenkins, uh, when he tells Private Jenkins to shoot at Bach, he goes, "Jenkins, trap with the wings there. Five rounds rapid." <laughs> Terence Dix nearly caught that line. Oh, there would have been trouble. But Barry, <laughs> let's put it back in. Good man, Barry. Can you imagine if that hadn't been in there? Yeah, because like, isn't that Nicholas Courtney's autobiography? Yeah. Five rounds yeah. rapid, yeah. Yeah, it, it's very much, it defines the Brigadier in many yeah. ways for a lot of people. But he just says it so casually. Yeah. It, it's just, I, I love it. Chop with the wings there. Five rounds rapid. It's <laughs> so, so cool. <laughs> um, so interesting for, a lot of modern people won't get this reference, right? Hmm. And I certainly wouldn't have, except that I looked it up. The broadcast was meant to be on BBC Three. Mm-hmm. The story came out in 1971. Mm-hmm. BBC Three didn't exist in 1971. Oh. Yeah. So, for contemporary audiences of the time, this was placing the story a few years in the future. It was assumed that BBC Three would eventually happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and the writers felt that probably wasn't too much, too far away. So this would allow them to kind of set the story in the 70s, but in the late 70s, hmm. rather than 1971. Which made sense at the time, but it doesn't make sense over time, <laughs> because <laughs> BBC Three didn't launch until 2003. Right. Which if you're to use... The fact that it's airing on BBC Three as when does this story take place? It would say set this story around the same time as Rose. Yeah. The first of uh, Christopher Atkinson's <laughs> stories. So a lot of people nowadays, they don't get it. They're like, oh, it's on BBC Three. Cause that's a station that exists. <laughs> I thought BBC Three existed like a bit before then. Like No, according to this, it was 2003. Just that we couldn't get her over here, you know? Yeah, no, it was Paris 2003. I thought it was a bit older as well, but maybe. It definitely didn't come out in the 70s anyway. Um, That's for sure. So, unit dating controversy? Oh, yeah. Like, this just throws (laughs) the whole thing out of whack. Because a lot of people kind of use this as a sort of starting point, being like, oh, well, BBC Three didn't exist in 1971, so clearly it wasn't meant to be 1971. But then, is it meant to be 2003? <laughs> um, Damaris Heyman, mm-hmm. who plays Miss Hawthorne, mm-hmm. she was actually really interested in the supernatural. And she had a friend of hers who was a practicing witch. And so she was actually, an, Damaris was like the unofficial advisor during production on all of the witchcrafty stuff. Oh. So a lot of the hand symbols that she does, a lot of the gesturing that she does, mm. that was all her. That was her contribution. Yeah, because I think at one point she does like the sign of the evil eye when she's talking yeah. about uh, the barrel being opened. Yeah. Uh, now, Christopher Barry and John Pertwee didn't really get along well. Okay. So at one point, Barry was trying to do a sequence near the barrier. Mm-hmm. And effect was being hindered right so john Pertu was standing around and apparently he got so sick of waiting around he just hopped on the motorbike and drove off in the hub hmm. and what's interesting is that on the blu-ray when they're describing this everyone's like yeah don't leave john with like motor vehicles when he gets in a tizzy like apparently john was very prone to having outbursts hmm. from what from the way it's described and so he just 
went off. Pertwee himself said, I hit the roof using the most colourful language at my disposal and generally behaved in the most unprofessional manner. That wasn't all, though, because they were filming on location over two weeks rather Mm -hmm. than just one week. Because there's a lot of filming on this, a lot of location filming. So there was meant to be filming on a Sunday. Mm Mm-hmm. That they moved to a Saturday because John Pertwee was doing a cabaret performance in Portsmouth and he wanted the Sunday to recover. Mm-hmm. This meant that Christopher had to miss his sister's wedding, which was on the Saturday. Oh. He sent a telegram, which was read out at the re- wedding and which read basically best wishes and whatever. And also said, Doctor Who has prevented me from coming. Meaning the show and the man. Yeah, they seemingly did not get on at all. You mentioned what's the other best line of this story. Mm -hmm. Would you care for a dance, Brigadier? (laughs) Rather have a pint. (laughs) That was um, Richard Franklin and Nicholas Courtney. So Richard Franklin realized that at the end of the story, Yates and the Brig are just sort of they don't have a sort of closing part because everyone else goes off and dance and they were stood there. So he asked Barry if he could have a line. You know, if himself and Nick could have a line and a close-up. And that's what they came up with. That is amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. Where did the brigadier go after his dinner? So there's a bit. So he goes off for his dinner. Then he disappears. And they can't find him. They don't know where he is. Nicholas Courtney had suggested that that may be where we include the Brigadier's wife, who was going to be called Fiona. And Terence Dix didn't really, he wasn't really a fan of it, so it wasn't included in the scripts. That character would later get mentioned in the past Doctor Adventures, and she would be the mother of Kate. So Doris isn't Kate's mother, his first wife, ah, Fiona, oh, was. Okay. That was actually Nicholas's, Nicholas Courtney's suggestion. The scene where Joe gets herself and the Doctor lost by holding the map upside down. Mm-hmm. Inspired by real life events. When John and Katie were driving to location shoot. <laughs> I, I I know that John is all about his vehicles, but maybe don't give a map to the nearsighted person. <laughs> yep. Um, Olive Hawthorne. So Mrs. Hawthorne was originally yeah. going to be called Mrs. Featherstone. I think Hawthorne works a bit better. Yeah, it does. Particularly with, if you think about like, a white witch, a sort of Hawthorne, naturalist yeah. type thing. I think Featherstone has too much of a comedic twang to it. Mm. Um, John Pertwee said this was his favourite serial. And Nicholas Courtney said it was the second after Inferno. This was also the last ever five-part Doctor Who television story. Yep, it's on four, fours and sixes from now on. So, on to our cast. So, Olive Hawthorne, I've already mentioned, Demaris Heyman. This is her only Doctor Who acting credit. Her other credits include The Bells of St. Trinian's, Hugh and I, Steptoe and Sons, Steptoe and Son, Zed Cars, The Dick Emery Show, The O'Needle Line, The Sweeney, The Pink Panther Strikes Again, The Basil Brush Show, and One Foot in the Grave. Demaris passed away earlier this year in June of 2021. Oh. Bert the Landlord is played by Don McKillop. I think I've said that right. Yeah, my eyes crossed over and I just said Don McMilk Pop. <laughs> okay, I did better than that. Don McMilk yeah. 
Um, this is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Don. He's most well known for playing Jack in the sitcom The Likely Lads. And his other credits include An American World in London, Rosie, He Said Cars Again, The Canal Children, and Sutherland's Law. Don passed away in 2005. Azal is played by Stephen Thorne. This is the first of four Doctor Who acting credits for Stephen. We'll see him again in The Three Doctors, Frontier in Space, and The Hand of Fear. He also read the novelization for the BBC audio version of The Mythmakers. I wonder if he used the Azal voice. <laughs> Apparently that's one of the reasons why he was hired, because he's very tall and he's got a great voice. Mm. Those two things as well. His non-Who credits include David Copperfield, Death of an Expert Witness, Crossroads, and Zed Cars again. That's three for three on Zed Cars. Yeah. Stephen passed away in 2019. Lastly, as Bok, we have Stanley Mason. This is his only credited Doctor Who role, though he does have an uncredited role as an alien priest in last week's story, Colony in Space. His non-Who credits include Monty Python's, Monty Python's Flying Circus and the Morkham and Wise show. I've probably seen him in both of those things. So. Possibly. You'd never know, because you never see his face. You'd never know. <laughs> So, we have done our story summary. Thank you, Paddington. We have done our trivia. Thank you, Trish. You're welcome. Now it is time for our character discussion. So this week we have the Doctor. We have our companions of Joe, the Brig, Benton, Yates, and Olive Hawthorne. Mm -hmm. And then we have the villains of the Master, Azal, Bach, and Bert. Yeah, this is. I think this is the first time in a while we haven't had a prominent character. Hmm. I was thinking for a while that Bert may fit into prominent characters, but then his his true colours were shown. Okay, never mind. Yeah, pretty much. And it wasn't on that weird jacket he was wearing. <laughs> that was just made up of newspapers. Pretty much. Like I like just, like so I was looking it up, right? And f sorry. This had a had a very uh, wicker man vibe to it. Yes. Despite the fact that this came out before the wicker man. Mm. But that kind of whole pagan pageantry thing, like, and like at one point, there's a guy dressed as Punch beating the shit out of the doctor with a fucking balloon, and then you've got um, the Mars dancers. Mar like, what the fuck are Mars dancers? Okay, apparently, right? I forgot to include this in trivia. I'll yeah. mention it now. Apparently, the Mars dancers by the end of the shoot mm -hmm. were very, very drunk because they'd come in, they do the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And then while everything was being reset, they go down the pub. Mm. Then they come back in and do it again. And go down the pub. And come back in and do it again. <laughs> so by the end of it, apparently they were quite sloshed by like three o'clock in the afternoon. So like, is it is it is there a good chance that that fight with Benton was actually just one of them pissed and picking a fight with John Levine? No, because I have a funny feeling that was done in studio. Okay. Whereas uh, the rest of the Mars dancers were done on location. Because like I tried looking it up, and like there's like in terms of like where the origin of the dance comes from, and like some of them were saying that it's from like um, when the Moors mm. uh, held territory in Spain and Portugal, and it was like obviously it's because of the bells at the bottom of the feet and some of the movements. It's a very exotic dance, and Mars is a derivative term of the word Moorish that they used. Mm. But I just remember like someone before saying, uh, you know, the way that the New Zealand rugby players do the haka, why don't England yeah. just do the bar stance back at them? Really confuse the shit out of them. 
Yeah, we've got off topic, but yeah. yeah exactly. Mars dancers are fucking Mars dancers. Are weird. We Sorry see... if you're listening and you are a Morris yeah. dancer. Feel yeah, free to no. tell us the history of it if you are. Because... Yeah, and look, I can't say fucking shit. In my county, we every year we nominate a goat to be king of the county. <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> and some poor girl has to feed the fucking thing for three days on the trot when everyone else in the fucking town gets pissed. <laughs> That's so weird. I, I don't live there like when this is in the county that I come from. <laughs> oh. <laughs> anyway. Characters. Discussion yeah. point of the fucking podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Doctor thoughts Paddington uh, go. <laughs> cool. <laughs> okay, Thunderbird. Uh, <laughs> I'm honestly kind of mixed on him here. Okay, mm. very, like and like there's no qualms about it. It's like no, I'm very mixed on him here. So on one hand, we have his usual integrity and courage by again resigning himself to potentially dying. Mm. Uh, knowing that he doesn't have the upper hand against the Zal. And I always like that. I like it when the villain is so fucking terrifying that it's sheer luck. You know, that the, the, the doctor just, ha- like, you know, there, there's no, like, he's got an ace up his sleeve. He can't use the sonic screwdriver. He doesn't have any device. It's like, I've got to argue my case is best and I've got to trust the luck. And we've seen it before in, in tough, in terms of stuff like uh, the Animus, mm. um, the the mind of evil other things like that so i like that villain um i like how he doesn't like you know butt heads with mrs hawthorne and he respectfully discusses like the science versus magic argument mm. you know Although at one point they do have a science magic yeah. science magic but like but there's but never that's, like that's fun on both sides it is yeah but like there's never this thing of like he never makes her feel bad over the fact that she believes in it mm. on the other hand fuck you yeah so joe when the when the brigadier says we're going to blade an artillery bombardment the doctor says no don't do it you know you'll just make the bloody thing stronger or whatever and joe goes of all the buzzes you know blundering plans or what some something to that effect and the doctor rips her a new one basically in he's front on, of other people in front of other people saying that the brigadier is under a lot of stress and you know he's doing the best that he can and also he's your, he's your superior so you need to show him some respect i'm like dude she's learned this from you you fucking rip on the brig constantly you fucking have brought into like you brought your scientific world or universe traveling mind and laid into him and his fucking plans don't set a bad example and then call her out on it when she mimics you also i he i he kind of shits on joe for the entirety of the story like he tricks her with bessie and it is sort of like a i don't know if it's mean-spirited but like the fact that they're talking about uh, astrology beforehand mm-hmm. and like he's like "Ooh, is it magic no it's science <laughs> um and she she was the one that insisted that he wasn't dead which kind of gave Reeves like the whole thing of like, right, fucking fine. Look, I'll look at him. Mm. Um, looked after him while he was in the bed, saved him. Mm-hmm. And never once does he say thank you. No. And as long-term listeners will know, I'm a big thing in terms of like, we can't always imagine what's said off screen. So in order to show like the concern or whatever, the well-being or the thought processes, it's always best on on screen. And that's not evident here at all. Like he doesn't even say like we should we like you know, we should all be thankful to Joe. He says like like you know due to like uh, a foolhardy act of self sacrifice, 
Joe saved us all. Yeah. No one fucking thanks her. She's just like, I did. It is sort of like a weird, you know, kind of like a dog kind of going, I did good. Uh, so, yeah, that really stuck in my craw. Like, and as, like, as noble as this whole thing of his confrontation with Azal is, that yeah. really sticks in my craw. Yeah. So, for me, it's it's pretty much the same. Like, Doctor, your asshole attitude is showing. Like, in more ways than one. So, first of all, yeah, he wasn't an asshole to Mrs. Hawthorne. Right. He was a little bit, but it was ribbing in both. Like, they were both taking the mick out of each other. Right. Which is fine. His attitude towards Joe, I think, is fucking ridiculous. And also the fact that he said that to her in front of other people. Mm. That that shit fucking gets my goat. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to pull her aside and say, hey, look, I know I do it all the time, but you really shouldn't speak about the brigadier like that in front of Benton and Yates. He's all of your superior officer. You know, you can disagree with his choices, but you need to find a better way to say them. Right? Or something like that. Like, he could have said it to her separately. But he didn't. In front of um, Benton, Yates, and a stranger, he just lays it into her as if she's a toddler. Mm-hmm. Do you know what it reminds me of? It reminds wow. me of in Harry Potter. Every time the guys call Snape just Snape, Mm-hmm. And Mary's like, Professor Snape. Yeah. That's fine because they're contemporaries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like they're they're her peers. But like it's just so hypocrite like you said, like he's the one literally at the end of the last story. Don't bother explaining it to him. He'll never understand. Mm-hmm. Even in this story he does it. He literally just said, Don't you fucking dare go bombard you. Like he goes on about it all the time. Mm-hmm. To then call her on it is just it's just shit. It's just, it's just shit. Yeah. The second thing is, don't be such an advanced, intelligent asshole either. So, like you said, you know, the whole thing with making dress, making making Bessie drive around, mm-hmm. was that good natured fun? Was it being a bit of a dick? I think it was a little bit of both. Mm. Um, I think he was planning on showing it to her anyway. Yeah. But I think he then did it in an underhanded fashion to take the piss out of her. Mm-hmm. But the way he is with the unit sergeant, Osgood, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. who's trying to figure out this thing, and the doctor's like, it's simple. And your man's like, it's fucking not like. what He just gets so frustrated with him over and over again. I'm like, if it's that much, like, if it's that important that this is done correctly, and you know that reversing the polarity isn't something this guy can just do because that's mm. not his fucking skill set, then. Don't get fucking belligerent with him. Just say, connect that to that, and that to that, and draw him a picture. Like the fact that he, the first time he draws it is the last time he talks to him before he drives off, with said picture on his fucking screen of his bike. Like you just took the picture of the diagram away with you. Hmm. Like, what the hell? Do you know what? Do you know who Osgood is? Osgood is me. Whenever you try to explain new math to me. <laughs> Oh. Base eight is just base ten, and if you have two of your fingers, that's stop all it. it. Is. Stop it. <laughs> Look, no, stop. Seriously, you gotta stop giving Paul about it. Your, your, he, he fucking like messaged me with that poxy song <laughs> on that Facebook. So no more of this. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Oh, it's fun. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So I think in this story, the doctor has he has some good moments, but the assholeness is yeah strong. Yeah, it, it like we're getting like kind of like you know, flashbacks to like you know some of the, the stories in the Troughton era, you know. Mm, very much so. Mm-hmm. So next we have Joe. Joe, I love you. You deserve so much more than the assholes you hang around with. I will say this now, right? We just spoke about Joe's outburst and the doctor's reaction to it. It is perfectly fine to blow off some steam about the brig using firepower to solve every problem. It is perfectly fine. She didn't say it to his fucking face. She was just venting. It's fine. No need to, like, because she looks so devastated when he gives out to her. And embarrassed. And that raises the question. Would he have said the same to Liz? No, I mean, Liz gave the Brigadier attitude all the fucking time. All the time. I could have done without the whole sacrificial bride bit. Right? So not only is she used as a sacrifice, but they change her into the white robe thing. Mm. This isn't the last time we're going to see this in Doctor Who. I could have done without it. I, I, at one point I was like, why the fuck the pretense? But then I realised... Based on what the doctor explained, is that like the whole pageantry feeds into it, it drives the emotion yeah. that, yeah, feeds the thing. so the master doing that is part of the whole process of feeding the, the science. Mm. So, yeah, now we're going to talk about Yates later on, so I'm going to hold my thought on that because mm-hmm. I have many. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing I like about her in this story is, yeah, she, she becomes a sacrificial bride. She gets knocked out at one point, whatever. But she is so courageous and selfish. She is petrified from the very the very beginning of the story. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. She's clearly frightened the whole time. And she keeps going, willing to sacrifice herself. In all things, all she wants to do is protect the Doctor. Mm. And she should be praised for that, not fucking condemned. Also, I just have to... Can you imagine being Benton and Yates in that moment when you flick over from this football match... And all you see is Joe bawling her eyes out over mm. what looks like the body of the doctor. Yeah. That as was she's, as she's trying to dig him out. That was so well done. Yeah. So well done. It, so yeah. it, it, Joe, it, I love you, you deserve more. You actually raised a very interesting point there, which was we commented last week about how on her very first alien adventure, she seemed mm. to take everything very well in hand. Mm. Even even when she was like isolated and kept, you know, in the primitive city. Like the minute the doctor shows up, like we've seen that she was um assessing her surroundings, all that, you know, all that stuff. You know? Mm. But it's weird to think that, you know, she can take all that in stride. Yet when it comes to the avenue of the supernatural, she's, you know, on edge the entire time. Well, I think the and you and I kind of discussed this a little bit last week. I think we kind of slightly disagreed about how easily she adapted to that. Because I said what made her what made it easy for her to adapt last time was she became comfortable with the space part because they were all human, relatively mm-hmm. normal from her perspective. And it wasn't until later that the whole primitives came into it. She was introduced to them gradually. Mm-hmm. It was a gradual thing. This is, for a lot of people, supernatural stuff. It's just sort of this inherent psychological thing that humans have mm. 
<laughs> I think there's a big difference between playing with this psychological, almost ingrained fear that humans mm. have versus going off into space and seeing something new and like the future is less scary than the past mm. in many ways yeah no like, like yeah yeah no it's, it's fairly because i suppose like i'll like because like when people say like oh do you believe in ghosts i'm like well honestly i'm not gonna fucking say no <laughs> you know because like it, it's just it's just one of those things that I'd ra- I'd rather not fucking rock the boat. Yeah. We'll put you that way, you know? Uh so yeah. Um moving on from that. <laughs> but no, I agree. Like I really enjoyed Joan the story because uh I think she gets a she gets a raw deal here from everyone. Yeah. Like, okay, fine. Yes, the doctor can use science to explain away her astrological beliefs, but like the bravery she exhibits here and the initiative that she shows as well, like sneaking out of the cloven hoof to try and solve the problem for everyone. Cause she knows that if she goes downstairs, the, the normal way Yates will stop her, Benton will stop her. They'll, you know, pat her on the head. They'll fucking tell her to sit down or whatever the case is. So she has to sneak out of the pub mm. to try and resolve the issue herself. Much in the same way that, you know, no, I suppose hysteria would take over the fact that she's, trying to dig the doctor out herself, not calling for help. Mm. But at the very end, it's like just that thing of where like sacrificing yourself at the end, like calling him a good man. Um, you know, you know, like, no, he's a good man. When Azal is like electrocuting him, giving him like the Palpatine type mm. fucking treatment. And which makes the whole thing, he doesn't even thank her worse, you know? Mm. Um, no, I, I think this was a really good showing from Joe because again, in terms of overcoming her fears to progress the plot, which yeah. she, which she does a fair bit here as a, like by herself as well. Mm. Um, I just thought it was a great showing from Joe. It was really good. Yep. And K- Katie Manning did a really, really good job throughout, throughout the entirety of it. Totally yeah. agree. And I would view this as a good example of whenever the doctor's on screen, I am, and I'll, I'll just say this as a thing for everyone. I don't think there's a single um area that i'm like ah, come on fucking hurry this up so i can go back to someone else you know like i'm interested to see how each thing is playing out like at the heat barrier in the pub in the church mm. in the barrow the whole lot of it yeah. so i think i'll just say that for you know, flat out for everyone but definitely when joe is by herself i'm like okay where's joe what's joe doing what's joe doing yeah then we have someone who in some respects doesn't do a whole lot the story no and like the man himself the brick yeah there's not there's nothing there is nothing new from him here that we haven't talked about before. Leading from the front, the whole lot of it, you know? Uh because like he's the one that continually tests the heat barrier. Mm. I mean, like, he doesn't use scientific equipment, he just uses a fucking stick. <laughs> His stick. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the that's, anyway, it's like you know, swagger sticks are not that fucking long, you know? So yeah. it's like and like the amazing thing about the heat barrier is like I love the science behind it in the sense of the closer you get to it. You know, it, it's not one of those things like, oh, it gets hotter the closer you get. It's like, no, the minute you touch it, that's where the heat reaction yes. lies. Yeah. I think that's fucking fascinating. I also love the um, how the effect of just the hole that they made mm. appear in it, and you see the shimmering of like the rest of it trying to reignite it itself. Love that. That was a really good uh, thing. Mm. Whereas with the brig, there is nothing new here that we haven't talked before, other than the fact he looks really snazzy in the dress uniform. He really does. Yeah. 
It's nice to see him wear pajamas, like you know, a, a decent British officer. <laughs> um, also, we get two of the best brigadier lines ever, which is "Chap with the wings, there five rolls rapid," and I think I'd rather have a pint. <laughs> yeah, like first of all, his dress uniform or his mess dress or whatever, whatever it was, mm-hmm. really good. Love it. Where did he go that night? Because clearly he was either in his own bed or in the bed of someone who has a pair of his pajamas on hand the following morning. Why couldn't they contact him? I'm going to assume that he was at some formal function. Yeah. That required his dress uniform. Yeah, but then later on, Yates is like, he went where? And like he doesn't know where he went. And this is after midnight. I'm like, surely he went either home. Or to a lady friend who mm-hmm. has the Maybe he went to Cambridge. Maybe that's where they can find him. Possibly. Yeah, he went to Cambridge. <laughs> okay, I'll stop it there. Um, yeah, and there we are. One thing I didn't like about this story, and I'm going to put this under the break, and I'll mention it again under Zal later on, is mm-hmm. I don't like how the technical solution didn't come through in the end. So we have the technical solution to get the brigadier through the barrier. Mm-hmm. Awesome. But then it fails. I don't like the fact that the Brig and Osgood couldn't make it work again at the end. Because it seems like that whole bit was just, we can't have the Brig in the situation at the beginning because we want to have it to be the boys on tour. So we'll come up with a heat barrier thing to keep him out. And then we'll have him come up with this super techie thing to get him through the heat barrier. But then we don't want the techie thing to solve the problem. So the techie thing breaks. It's like, why, why, what the, why do that? To be fair, the techie thing blew up. It didn't break, it blew up. <laughs> well, yeah, but I would have rather it broke. Yeah. And they found a way to fix it. Yeah, and have Osgood come in the end and the doctor make some smart ass remark. Yeah, or like have it. like, you know, the doctor saying like, oh, for Christ's sake, he broke it. And the brigadier saying, you know, no, he did a good job. Osgood, keep working on it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and have him actually have faith in his people. Like, do you know? Or he could have um, just beat it with a stick. Get, yeah. get it working again. Um, because it seemed like, yeah, the Brigadier brought in... He had the great line, which is great. I love it. But like, he brought in weapons that weren't really effective. Mm. So what did he actually add to it? Nothing really. Like, And, and, with, and that's unfortunate think, because yeah. you could have had him being... Yeah, he tried to do the air barrage. That was shot down as an idea. Mm. You could have had him rallying Osgood. Mm-hmm. and being like I don't know what the doctor's talking about well forget what he said you know what did you do before okay mm-hmm. do it again you can do it again you like, yeah it's like we, we get his usual like fiery come on man you know yeah, like, moment I think I think we should have gotten that instead I'll, I'll get more into that with us all but I think mm-hmm. that would have been a better ending I think it would have made a better use of the character mm-hmm. yeah or just fuck it just have the brigadier and Azal duke it out <laughs> yeah or fuck it actually have the um, the Coven interact with the unit troops yeah or actually have the grenade launcher destroy Bok and not have him reform mm-hmm. yeah I would, I would have I actually <laughs> thought it, I thought it would have been cool to see like maybe one of those things kind of like the mummy you know where they all rush into the chamber and they're like oh what the fuck is that thing when they see us out yeah <laughs> Ah, and I suppose we'll go on to the boys on tour. Yeah. Which which boy do you want to go first? Uh, okay, d- depends. <laughs> For me, do you want to end on a high or a low? 
We'll end on a high. We'll do fuckface first. Okay, cool. <laughs> so fuckface is Yates in this particular yeah. interaction. I have a question, right, for both Benton mm. and Yates, but more so for Yates as the commanding officer in this situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why are you both out of uniform? So the way I did it in the summary, and it's... <laughs> I can imagine they wore civvies to try and allay any fears. Of but, landing on the green yeah, yeah, unit I was, yeah, I, that, That's the thing. Like, okay, you're landing in a helicopter. Fair enough. You're not really going to seamlessly blend into fucking surroundings. You also mm. landed in the middle of the village green. Hmm. Now, I'm wondering, wondering, if the hoof prints hadn't been on the ground, would they have landed in the village green? Would I think so, because they didn't land in the village green because of the hoof prints. They landed for the hoof prints, and then they took off again, and then they went and landed in the green, because that's where Joe was. Yeah, but the hoof prints said they went all the way into uh, in, into the village. So that's but they weren't I'm, on the green. The hoof prints they, weren't no, on the green. No, they weren't on the green, so I think maybe just the green was just the only place they could fucking land in the, in the village. Yeah, but the reason why they landed on the green was because the green was by the pub, and the pub is where Joe was. It's like parking your car right outside the fucking front door. Except they parked their helicopter <laughs> right outside the front door. Maybe their uniforms were in the wash. Yeah, it's just it's just something where I get that. It, I mean, I wouldn't mind it if they'd ever mentioned it. Like, oh, Captain Yates, why are you out of uniform? Oh, well, we wanted to blend in. Then you shouldn't have brought the helicopter, should you? <laughs> uh, one second, I want to check something. No, I thought it was going to be something different. Um, because it was the two of them, there's mm. a, there's a sh- another show uh, called The Professionals, mm. uh, which again deals with like kind of two covert operatives uh, with former military experience. Now, the only problem is, is that debuted six years after this. Yeah. So, but well, I, the only thing I can think of is that they were they weren't going as representatives of unit. They were mm-hmm. going as Mike and John, who were concerned about their friends. In which case, why didn't you just drive through the night in your mm. car? Why take the unit-marked helicopter? The only reason I can think of it is to, for filming purposes, to establish the hoof prints. That's the only. That's the only reason they took the helicopter. Yeah. Um. Aside from that, that was just a question I had, and because mm-hmm. Mar- Mike or because Mike is the commanding officer, it mm-hmm. would fall on him to dictate mm-hmm. that. More action spy Yates here, which is fine. Mm-hmm. However, there's a reason I call him fuckface. I still don't like him. Calling Joe a little idiot to himself put me on edge. Yeah. However, he's frustrated. She just fucking disappeared. Benton was already beaten up. She got bonked on the head. There's all this stuff happening. He's, you know, anxious and tense and whatever. You could argue for a pass. I wouldn't believe you, but you could argue. Saying it to her fucking face, though. No. Does I'm call, sorry. Does he call her an idiot to her face? Yeah. He says, you little idiot. I thought he to said, her face. I thought he already said that in the... Um, no, he said it in the room mm-hmm. on his own. But then he said, when he finds her in the cavern, crypt, he says it to her face. No, she's not an idiot. 
don't call her one anyway. But if you are going to call her an idiot to yourself out of frustration, that's one thing. Don't call her to her fucking face. Yeah, he so he calls her an idiot. I've just I've just gone through the um, the script there. So he calls her an idiot to her face, and he calls her and he says little idiot inside the um, yeah. thing. Don't no. call her an idiot to her face. What the fuck is wrong with you? Uh, and actually, uh, going through the script again, the doctor actually says the brigadier's plan is idiotic. And Joe mimics it, so yep. that makes me even fucking worse. Um, so, like, initially, I was thinking, right, because I had complete my argument is now shot out of the water. But what really got me was like he said, "You little idiot" in the room. Mm. No, just say for example, okay, he hadn't called her an idiot to her face. Wh- would which is the thing that pisses you off the most? Is the fact that he's calling her an idiot, or the fact that he's calling her a little idiot? Both. Right. Because, like... All right. Calling her a little anything is just demeaning. But we've yeah. already seen him treat her like a child, so that's nothing new. Calling her an idiot is new. Yeah, because I think, like, okay, the little component, it's unnecessary. It's it's just kind of mean-spirited. But it's like, okay, in that scenario, you run into the room, and, like, whoever you're looking for has gone off, and you're like, ah, you fucking dope. Yeah. Or, like, no, more likely, I kind of go, ah, for fuck's sake. Like the effort now I have to go to to try and find you to fucking whatever, but yeah no I just I I'm not a fan of it like I I didn't particularly like that component of it. Yeah, I mean the other thing is right if you were going with that right so you had noticed that he'd called her an idiot to her face later on right so we we'll, mm-hmm. we'll leave that part aside for the moment yeah. right. If you're just going with him being like oh for fuck where the hell did she go now right? Mm-hmm. Still to call her a little idiot, yeah. she was delirious. She had to be sedated. She's possibly concussed. Yeah. For all you knew, she was abducted out of the room. The only indication he has that she went of her own volition is that she took her coat. That's it. But for all he knows, she was abducted. Mm -hmm. For all he knows, she's delirious. For all he knows... Anything could have happened to her. And his mm-hmm. jump his jump is little idiot. No, sorry. Fuck you, Yates. I didn't like you before. And I'm fucking really not liking you now. Yeah. Which, I, I suppose, like, this is the thing as well, is that, like, um, was it Richard Franklin, from all accounts and purposes, is a lovely person. Oh, yeah. It's he's a, like it's a lovely a, guy. It's a, it's the same with like Peter Purvis. You know, from all accounts, he's a fucking lovely guy. You know, which unfortunately, he plays an asshole. Yeah. Um, how about we go to he, like no he is Benton's gal Friday I refuse yeah. to call it the other way around actually before we go on to Benton mm-hmm. um, on the behind the scenes thing yeah they were commenting about that line I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. or Brigadier would you care for a dance no I'd much rather have a pint uh, I think it was like Nicholas Courtney said well that sums it up the Brigadier is <laughs> an alcoholic and Yates is gay <laughs> <laughs> because they all went off to do the fertility dance male female and then <laughs> Yates is like do you want to go for a dance <laughs> so <laughs> Nicholas Courtney said well, that sums it up the brigadier's an alcoholic and Yates is gay <laughs> cool <laughs> uh, and it, this coming from Nicholas Courtney for the man yeah. who on the cover of his autobiography is wearing a dress yeah, <laughs> yeah. you can wear whatever uh, he wants 
Because yeah. <laughs> he's the fucking brig. <laughs> uh, cool. So how about Benton? Action man Benton. Or also punching bag Benton. <laughs> I, I, I have a down as Benton. Strengths. Marksmanship. Dress sense. Because he, he does look kind of snazzy. Weaknesses. Cloaks and Morris dancers. He gets the shit knocked out of him. Yeah. Embarrassed though, like he is he's Benton. Do you know? Yeah. Th- this is an ideal Benton story. And like yeah. I think the thing about him getting beaten up is mm. A, with the Morris dancer, at one point he had a gun but that got knocked out of his hand. He had no weapons. Yeah. And I imagine Benton wasn't trying to hurt this guy. Do you know? Like this is a civilian who yeah, attacked him with a stick, but that's it like. Now, granted, Olive then brained him with her handbag. <laughs> yeah, but see, this is the thing, right? It's like, it's one thing if, like, you know, the Morris Dancer was just trying to keep him inside or whatever. No, the Morris Dancer was out to fucking kill him. Like, he went at him with that fucking club, like, ridiculously. I'm trying to give Benton the benefit of the doubt. He was trying not to hurt him. <laughs> well, no, no. In order to give benefit, uh, Benton the benefit of the doubt, we can use the fact that he stepped on a fucking some sort of weird demon stargate that rattled him <laughs> completely. Also, I love the f- it's one of the things where I've never really seen it in other Doctor Who stories and maybe I missed it but hmm. I like how they keep Benton's face fucked up. Hmm. He's getting more scars and bruises and cuts as the story goes on. Yeah, I, I actually They don't that- hide away from it like I think, yeah, no, like, because we've talked about before how we've disproved my initial statement of the McCrimmon effect. I think it's the Benton effect now. Because <laughs> he gets, like, like I, do, I did like his fight with uh, Garvin, you know, where he just, like, you know, kicks back and knocks the shotgun out of his hand. Yeah. And that fight he was going to win until he stepped upon the other big spooky source, uh, spooky science. Yeah. But, like, you know, like that, like, it's a really intense fight scene. It's great. Mm. And it's actually probably one of the most realistic fight scenes that they've ever done. Yeah. In terms of, like, it's like it is do or die. There's no music over it as such at all. Like, and it's um, and it's only by virtue of the fact that Mrs. Hawthorne, who we'll get onto in a second, uh, intervened. But like, it's classic Benton, though. He's like the Chumbawamba song. You know, I'll get knocked down, but I get off again. You're never going to keep me down. He picks himself up and he carries on. And one thing that I, again that I loved was it's a simple thing, and uh, is when he blows up Bach. Everyone's like high five and going, yeah, Benton or whatever. He's like, uh, lads, no. Like he doesn't take time to, yeah, gloat in the moment. He's keeping an eye to make sure, like that. Maybe there's not another fucking gargoyle going to appear. You know. Mm. I thought that was right as well. Yeah. Um, Olive clearly has a thing for him. Oh, she's oh she. Which I him. think stems from her need to protect him from that yeah. initial encounter. It's that she carried him all the way back. Uh, yeah. So, it, okay, it kind of goes from like <laughs> to get you know into a small bit of team bar after dark here. It goes from like that, you know, need to protect him to oh, Sergeant, come, let us do the fertility dance. <laughs> I'm like, well, someone's getting into someone's knickers tonight. <laughs> I don't think he wants to. <laughs> no, I don't think he wants to either. <laughs> he wants to go away with his galliates too. Yeah, ex- ex- exactly. Like <laughs> one thing though, right? So my one criticism, and again, I will I will also lay this at Yates' feet, but Benton was the one flying the helicopter. Mm-hmm. Next time, 
don't just hop out of the de- helicopter and just push the door closed behind you. Lock the fucking door of your helicopter and don't leave the keys in it. Yeah. True. Otherwise, people will steal it. Uh, but it's okay. Mrs. Hawthorne is there to save the day. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure she killed that guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because like, she like has a crystal ball in her... Uh, handbag and she brains that fucking guy now i don't know if anyone's ever held, held a crystal ball of any um decent size but they're fucking heavy <laughs> and that to the back of a guy's head at this force she swung it yeah that guy's dead <laughs> nice lady but, though yeah but it's grand the local constable is dead so no one can arrest her yeah and the local constable nearly brained her like so you know yeah yeah much window. Uh, seems like a nice lady, dedicated mm-hmm. to her craft and the people mm-hmm. of her village. You yeah. kind of like you kind of like with a character like that, you'd sort of be expected for her to be the local um, wacko. The local wacko, but clearly she cares a lot for people. And you know, yeah, some people think that she's a wacko, but that was at the master's behest. Most mm. people seem to think she's fine. Um, originally, she was meant to be more of a bumbling character. I'm actually glad they didn't go with that. That was uh, the actress push for that because mm. her her thing was. This person is able to control the elements or like stand against the elements. Mm-hmm. She's also able to face down the master and not give in to his mind yeah. control. Her being like the bumbling little, you know, klutzy village witch or whatever witch. Yeah. doesn't work. No, and like I'm really glad that she was uh, at Damaris uh, yeah. and stood up for that because like I really enjoy Mrs. Hawthorne as a character. Like, mm. Very easily could have gone down the route of the comedic whack, local wacko, but as you said, like it's she is she views herself as a village protector because yeah. obviously the local legends of the barrow and all the occult practices that went on in the area, like she is a white witch, she even says that she's a white witch. And like, I get the like impression, like, you know, because like, the constable, like, he had a very nice interaction with her, Square mm-hmm. Winstanley. I get the impression, like you know, like some of like the local wives, they go to her for like the tarot readings or like, mm. the tea readings, all this stuff. Like the white witch cove. Yeah, exactly, like her, and like she's just one of those village fixtures, you know. Yeah. And she st- stood for her village. Yeah, like it was Christopher Barry who said that he was originally going to make the character the kind of bumbling character, mm. and like Demaris really pushed for it to not be that way. Yeah, and no. he conceded that she was right, but apparently Demaris sort of reminded him of that fact anytime she saw him because she was fucking yeah. adamant about it like yeah i don't know like it's i like it when actors kind of stand for like you no know, my character wouldn't do this my character wouldn't do that mm-hmm. because it turns the visual experience anyway from a, a, a for fuck's sake type of thing to i need more of this you know but it's all it also clearly shows her understanding of the master as well that she would mm. know you need to be a very strong-willed character mm-hmm. not to give in to him yeah exactly know? which is great yeah not one of those things i'm sorry i don't have my glasses on i can't really see what you're looking at type <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> uh she's no, she's no sybil trelawney no Actually, I would just like because we watched Hotel Transylvania too recently. There's a scene there like, where Dracula tries to hypnotize the head counselor for like a vampire summer camp. And he goes, "He was like, you will, you will never tell this to anyone. Uh, I'm a vampire. I can't be hypnotized." <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> uh 
so speaking of the master and his ilk, mm. um, we have so yeah, we said we have the master, Bach, Bert, and Azal. So how would you like to stack this? Bert, Bach, master, master. Yeah. Azal. Oh uh, yeah, no, I agree that Azal should go at the very end. Yeah. So, Bert. Perhaps you've heard of me, Bert. <laughs> <laughs> But the word is me jogging along, along jog- hearty and strong, living on plates of fresh air. I'm blowing up Bertie. <laughs> <laughs> See scraps of my shirty as they float down through the air. <laughs> oh, to the five people who understand that reference, hello. <laughs> uh, Burlington Bertie popular music hall show for, or music hall song from like the early 1920s yeah anyway um i i thought at the beginning that bert was like everybody else and that he was hypnotized by the master by mm. the end i don't think he was no he bought into that shit hook line and sinker see this is the thing that's very interesting right is that clearly the coven is already established yeah in a sort of weird hot fuzz for the greater good type of fucking <laughs> thing um and the master comes in and he probably just just takes it over, whatever the reason may be. Because I don't see, like, we know that the master is only a recent arrival. Mm. I don't see him setting up a coven that clandestinely, that quickly, even with his spooky eyes. Yeah, but the uh, thing is, I think some of the members of the coven, I think he does take control over. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, big, especially that one younger guy that seemed to, like... The guy in the run- red jacket. Yeah, want to, but not even the guy that tried to stop him from killing Joe. Yeah, but like clearly there's some bit of mm-hmm. mental. But I don't get that with Bert at all. He seems no. just genuinely he's bought into the master's BS. Yeah. Uh, oh, big time. And like, because like, like last week, you know, I brought the point of religious fanaticism. Mm. So here we have something kind of similar because like, he's like the chief zealot, chief toady, but he reminds me of a character from a movie called The Mist based on a Stephen King book mm. that initially is very sceptical of the whole thing but when stuff starts kind of matching up with what the local religious nutjob is saying he becomes like her biggest supporter and here it's a case of I think Bert was always like I don't think there's any hypnotism involved I think it's like no cool I like the power you're offering I'm all in on you yeah and I think that he almost becomes like um I know that you haven't seen it but uh, the character Renfield from Dracula because he runs off screaming Mr. Magister Mr. Magister because you know looking for him to save him you know mm. I think as well like I mean you mentioned um the wicker man yeah and Bert personifies that type of thing um the fact that he uses the May Day celebrations mm. and the Morris dancers and his position in that as a form of attack really sort of ties into that whole mm. thing and yeah there's a i think there's actually a lot of if you're a sort of classic horror fan mm-hmm. particularly there's classic a, british horror fan there's a lot, lot in of, this story if, that, really if is, that's your thing it's not wick, my thing personally but if it is then no, there's a lot in here the the wicker man i love the movie but jesus the first time i saw it it really fucked me up I'm assuming you mean the original and not the yeah you know, no no like not, not not that you know fucking ah oh, the bees shit yeah. no but like the horrible thing about the Wicker Man is that going off topic now obviously mm. horrible thing about the Wicker Man is that how it ends 
really makes you question the whole concept of fate mm. and not 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 religion well a small bit of religion because you know like the whole pagan ceremony aspect of things mm. but fate and what fate can drive you to do and what fate you're does. saying you're saying fate did you mean fate <laughs> yeah sorry with a th uh, or yeah. fate with an th uh, uh, th sorry fate of the heart yeah, yeah. <laughs> shut up uh faith as in something you believe in right yeah. okay. and sorry this, I, I, yeah. I didn't follow you I, for a second yeah I know. no but it, it brings like the, and again it, it's just my reading on it it's it brings to this whole thing of what faith can drive you to do versus what faith will do for you yeah and like it's a it, it's a fantastic film i would recommend it to anyone in terms of looking for horror looking for suspense even looking for like you know those that weird religious message whatever but it's a it fucks you off it really does but back to this i get huge vibes of that as you said from this movie or sorry from this episode and it's amazing to think that this came out years beforehand mm. um and like there's even elements of thinking like stuff like the omen which is again one of my favorite horror movies uh not so much in the countryside type thing but the demonic aspect of stuff and then obviously there's stuff like Hot Fuzz, which you know is a bit more comedic, but there's like yeah. the cause. There's also like I'll, I'll just mention it now since we're talking about sort of horror tropes mm -hmm. and horror thing. The way the master gets the townspeople to do is very village of the damned. Oh yeah, revealing your, your man padding the books and your man yeah. doing that is very village of the damned. I think again, yeah, not something I, I'm aware of it in principle, not something yeah. I've personally seen that type yeah. of movie. Not my bag, but. Yeah, yeah, like there, there's a lot of like you know, it's classic British horror. It is classic British horror, and I think it's something that for me as a horror fan, it's very hard to replicate now. You mm. don't get the same level of consistency as you did before. Yeah. Um, but anyway, to Bert, Bert is a perfect representation of that type of character that was like maybe immortalizing like the Hammer horror films, you know, or yeah. anything like you know, in terms of like the Wicker Man and that kind of stuff, and his ending. It, it is quite pitiful and pathetic in the sense mm. of like, you know, he's running off begging to be protected by his, the guy that he's shown his lot in with, and he's just gone like that. Bot yeah. just disintegrates him, doesn't really care if it's friend or foe. Yeah. Um, so... I think the difference as well between Doctor Who and like a horror movie mm -hmm. is if it was a horror movie, Bessie would have ran over him. Yeah, pretty much. As opposed to just knocked into his ankles. Now, obviously the Doctor is in control of Bessie. Yeah. But like, if the, if that was in a horror film, yeah, he would have been fully run over. Absolutely. Sorry for my uh, rambling there in terms of the Wicker Man. Thing. I'll tell you about it later. But Jesus. Um, so next we have Bach. Hyperactive little thing, isn't he? Mm. So, um, that's what Alice calls chicken. So like every time I hear Bach, I just go Bach, 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 Bach. Bach is creepy. He is fucking creepy. And I actually remember that years and years ago when UK Gold, UK TV Gold were doing a Doctor Who at 40 celebration. Mm. This was the story they picked. This was the story for John Parker. Yeah. yeah, this was the story for the third Doctor. And one of the people on it talked about how as a kid he was terrified of Bach. And I'd agree with him like because I don't know what the scariest thing about Bach is. Is it like his weird childlike impish behavior? Is it the fact that he's impervious to bullets? Is it the fact that he can obliterate people? Or is it like, you know, that he's essentially a stone T-1000? Like, because I know that part where he reassembles himself is just the footage played in reverse. Mm. But if you were to put in terms of, like, putting yourself in the scenario, which we sometimes try and do, 
that's that is quite terrifying. I think it's the impishness. Yeah. With the glowing eyes. And the animalistic growl. And the blowing you up. Yeah. I think those things. I think the fact that he's impervious to bullets, I think, isn't necessarily a fear thing. No. That doesn't make you more afraid of him. Like, you could have anyone being impervious to bullets. Hmm. It's the fact that he, like, like when he hopped in through the window. Yeah. That was, like, oh, there's some really, really good moments in this story. <laughs> One thing I would have preferred. Mm-hmm. And this is just down to the time it was made. And part of me is like, oh, I kind of would have preferred if it was made now because they probably would have done this, but then the story wouldn't have felt the same. It would have been great if they could actually make him fly. Yeah. As opposed to having to run everywhere. I see, like, obviously, like, there's the, um, there's a part there when he's sent to the barrel. Yeah. You see the mask, like, you know, it, it focuses on the master and the master just looks up into the sky, which is meant to give the impression that Bach has taken flight. Hmm. Uh, but then he because, just pops his head up and kind of waves. Yeah. <laughs> Because like otherwise, like you know, like I think if they had tried doing the, the was it the CSO effect? Yeah. No, uh, I don't think it would have worked. I think no, it would. It would have been very cheesy. They didn't do it with the technology that they had at the time. Yeah. It just would have been great if they'd had the technology to do it. Yeah. Because uh, it could, it, it would like it would have come across looking small, but like Super Grover, you know, <laughs> Super <laughs> Grover. Um, but no, like I like I really enjoyed Bach. Yep. What would happen? Mm. I suppose. Who do you think would win? Mm-hmm. Bach or a weeping angel? Because Bach absorbs energy. Would that mm-hmm. also apply to temporal energy? I don't know. Well, I, I, I'm going to say Bach wins. Well, no. Are we talking about weeping angel singular or weeping angels plural? We'll do 1v1. Oh, Bach wins. Yeah. Bach will just fucking shatter him. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> thought I'd mention yeah. it. Okay, moving on, we have the master mm-hmm. or the magister. So, I like the setup for this one, okay? Mm-hmm. Because unlike Axos, like so, we we jump into clause and Axos, uh, the clause of Axos, sort of like in uh, Media Res with uh, the master, like halfway through his story, mm-hmm. so he's already captured. But he never seems afraid of Axos. It's no. always just like try- here he seems actually afraid of Azal. Yeah. And that helps sell the threat of Azal. And like to the extent like you know, he's so afraid of him that he sense of you know, like I shouldn't have talked to him alone. I need the coven. And that didn't read as a whole I need to control him vibe. It's like I need meat shields and I need a lot of meat shields. Mm. Like Again, we have another story of the master relying on another species for power. Mm-hmm. I think this is probably the best one of them, though. Definitely. I think Colony was good last week. We mm-hmm. liked it. La- I liked it last week. But I think this one is probably the best representation of that because here it makes sense why he would need to rely on this other species. Mm-hmm. But there's also, like I said, is there that fear? Do you know? Mm-hmm. Um. Like I said, I love how he used the sort of village of the damned mind control thing on the villagers. Mm-hmm. Impersonating a member of the clergy is ballsy. Very ballsy. Um, you know, not even the CIA does that. So, but do what do what's really do what kind of sells the whole um, revealing the villagers' secrets? Like I don't know if you agree with me or not. It's the fact that it takes place in like 
the vicarage as opposed to like in some sort of big public forum or big, or even in the church. I, I, I don't know what it is, but just the architecture of the vicarage house actually adds a layer of creep to it for me. Yeah. I wasn't sure if that was the vicarage or if that was no, the home the... of the other guy, but then the other guy left, so I suppose that makes sense. Yeah, so that, no, that is the vicarage. Yeah. Um, but I think that is great. Mm-hmm. I think there is a little bit of the master that's quite pathetic in this story, though. Mm-hmm. Like at the end with the Zal, where he's like, you'll give the power to me and I'll use it and blah, blah, blah. And there's a little bit of pathetic there, but it's like it's it's an it's a natural progression pathetic, not a sort of oh he's just suddenly looking pathetic. So jumping the gun massively, okay. Mm. It kind of reminds me of John Sim in the end of time, mm. in terms of like how he interacts with uh, Rassilon, mm. and like you know it's like there is that almost pathetic you know let me join you, let me go and let me all this type of stuff you know, and. I think that's kind of fitting in with the master's character in the sense of he knows how powerful he is, but when there's a greater power there that he knows he shouldn't piss off, like he does kind of does come across as a small bit of a uh, sniveler, you know? Hmm. But it was like Roger Delgado was brilliant at it. Oh, yeah. And throughout, like he, again, he really helps sell the threat of Azal. Like, because as you said, that cliffhanger that ends with him like telling Azal to stay back. And even when he picks up like the iron thing, like he knows that it's essentially the fucking like this is you know mind over matter bullshit here now, you know. Um, no, but like, this is definitely one of Roger Delgado's best performances as the master. I think the other thing that makes this amazing is the fact that Roger went through that whole ser- summoning ceremony thing, mm. and he plays it completely straight. Yeah, he does the blessing with the holy water. All that that's mm-hmm. what it is, but that's essentially what it is. Um the little bit of the chanty part and then the Mary had a little lamb backwards. Yeah. Now I would have known that was Mary had a little lamb backwards, regardless of whether or not I read it on the TARDIS wiki, because mm. I always watch Doctor Who with the subtitles on. Yeah. And when it comes up in the subtitles, yeah. your yeah. brain goes, Oh, oh yeah, that is Mary had a little lamb backwards. <laughs> um but he says it because it's also it's not like they take all of the letters and then they make them into separate words. So yeah. it's not like E-Ram, it's Ram mm. something else, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but that was very well done. Mm. And, you know, unless you were told that's what it was, you probably wouldn't have picked up on it unless you watched it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and kudos to Roger for that, like, because there is one other thing we get in here that I'm really looking forward to. It's one of my favourite things from John Pertwee's era of Doctor Who. Which is the beginning of the Venusian lullaby. Yeah. Which I love. <laughs> was it? Close your eyes, my darling. Well, three of them at least. <laughs> there is a fantastic... There is a story that will use that more in a few mm-hmm. weeks. But then there is a girl on YouTube, or a woman on YouTube, who recorded a version of that with both the... Venusian lyrics and then the lyrics mm-hmm. in English. It's actually so beautiful. I'll have to share it with you when we get to that story. Thank you. Thank you. But yeah, I think it's time to talk about the Hornet one himself. Mm-hmm. Azal. Azal. So, in pure classic British horror f- fashion, you s- save the best for last. Mm-hmm. I love live. I love, I love. How, I love how Azal is slowly built up on. And we don't get to see him until the very last episode. Yep. Having him be fully revealed too early 
I think would have spoiled the story. And it's like you get bored with this whole thing. It's like, oh, why is Zal Oli in the church? And like, why can't we get to see him? Like, you'll run rampant across the village or anything like that. I thought the story structure for Zal was very well done. Mm. And like the teases of like, okay, we get to know that he's incredibly fucking tall. Or, okay, he seems to take on the the first thing that we see from is uh, his legs. And like, mm. you say, okay, like, oh, he's coming across like as a stereotypical, like, portrayal of the devil and then it's at the very end when you just see him with the whole regain and like, you never actually see Azal at his full 30 feet tall you see him grow but then you yeah. never see the fullest thing and like it gives this great sense of perspective is that he is so huge you can't take him all in at, at the one time mm. so I love that um <laughs> The fact that he, like, whenever he speaks, like, the wind is constantly blowing, mm. gets across to you how powerful he's meant to be. But at some point, in my head, I'm kind of going, would someone please close the fucking door? <laughs> <laughs> There's a draft. I can't hear what the man is saying. Um, but, like, <sighs> Stephen Thorne, so a combination of Stephen Thorne, the dialogue, and the, the obviously the performances of uh, Katie, John, and Roger all really sell just how terrifying of an entity Azal is. Yeah, I agree. And that is the be- one of the best things I've always said about Doctor Who is that when you have a villain that is so terrifying and so all-powerful that it is sheer fucking luck that gets you out of the scenario, that's a great villain. Yeah. Like, I completely agree. I think Azal was done really well. Leaving the reveal until the end, great choice. I think, I mean, when you look back at this, when you look back at Classic Who, the CSO is often a bit dodgy, mm-hmm. right? I think it was actually done really well for Azal. Yep. They used it in the right place, used it in the cavern. The lighting isn't as much of a problem. I think it worked really, really well. Mm-hmm. Everything you said about him as a villain... The fact that he had this thing of, well, the experiment is over. I'll just destroy it. Yeah. This oh. completely, you are so far beneath me. Like, you are ants. Mm-hmm. Like, it's amazing. What I didn't like, though, when I mentioned it earlier, is the way he's taken out. Yeah. The power was, I, of love. I was going to save that for my overall. <laughs> I have it in my overall, but I'm going to say it here, right? Because it's to do with Azal as a character. Right. right? And Terence Dix has kind of said this and so because we're right. The ending was a bit weak. Mm-hmm. Because the power of love. So Joe self-sacrifices and it doesn't compute. Yeah. This guy has been here for a hundred thousand years. Observing humanity. Guiding it in some ways. And the idea of sacrificing your life for somebody else has never fucking come up. But it's not even like... He's not a computer. He's a fucking... He's a living entity. Yeah, and that's like, the thing. Like that's where I think if you go back to what I was saying about the break, have Joe self sacrifice knock him back? Mm-hmm. Have it, que- have him questioning what's going on? Like mm-hmm. this isn't the people I've been seeing. What is? Have him questioning it. That's fine, but then have the Brig and Osgood come in with the scientific solution. Because bear in mind, this whole thing has been this notice thing is magic. Mm-hmm. It in the end. Yeah. It's magic. But actually, uh, thoughts on this, right? His confu- uh, So, he, yeah, he's he doesn't kill the doctor and he stalls because he's confused by, you know, Joe's self-sacrifice. 
what if he offered what if he gave joe the power to see if the whole thing of absolute power corrupts absolutely yeah my thing i was waiting for him to ask joe yeah like he had all of these humans there mm-hmm. i was waiting for him to say which would you pick mm-hmm. one of these beings is going to have power over you which would you pick yeah um Some and for degree- her to say neither <laughs> but yeah i just think that i think the power of love ending was a bit bit of a waste so i was going to save that for my my overall because like that (laughs) in terms of the grander scheme of things like none of that is azal's fault it's just really bad writing well yeah but it's directly plays into azal yeah it is yeah like it's like character and it it just seems the whole confuse the whole matter because the he's a living entity he's not a computer so he can't short circuit it's like another thing of yeah you said does not compute it's like okay understand like cannot comprehend but that doesn't mean it's like you blow up your ship yeah. blows up your little minion blows up it, it's almost like some sort of weird like douglas adams hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy type fucking thing it's like you know that doesn't make any sense oh dear god in heaven can shows himself out a window type shit yeah um, I don't. I think like he was doing so well, and then there was that part. Where I was like, ah, but, but didn't stick the landing. No, but like a lot of great villains, and like some of the like Warden, some villains, and one villain in particular, who we're going to discuss in many many months. I want to see more of his kind. I want to see a story further back in time to see more of them, mm. because. If Azal is meant to be as po- so powerful that he can destroy the entire fucking world, what is an entire civilization of those beings like, and how do they interact with each other? Yeah, because like, we've got, like we see through the pictures that the Doctor shows. Yeah, Egyptian gods were mm-hmm. actually him. Mm-hmm. But but see that's the thing. It's like right, is Azal like I know that's the thing I'm kind of confused about. Right, is Azal meant to represent all of these things? Or is it kind of like Stargate, where multiple of his kind came and were interpreted differently? I don't know. I I prefer the idea that Earth was Azal's little project. Hmm. Do you know, and he's the last one left. Mm-hmm. And Earth is his little project. Because he says that the experiment will end. Well, yeah. if it's multiple people doing the experiment, then that doesn't make sense. Hmm. So I took it more from that perspective rather than the Guauld multi- yeah, multi god thing. Cool. E- either either works for me, like realistically, mm-hmm. like I would just like to see more of them, see yeah. an eventual more of them. And you know, in in the words of Casey Manning, and for him to pull up his tights a little bit because his tights <laughs> were getting a little bit baggy there towards the end. <laughs> he was wearing incontinent Snickers. So we have used our white magic to take on black sor- black science, or was it sorcery? Who the hell knows anymore? <laughs> uh, Christ, I want dark chocolate because you know black black magic chocolate. Magic. Band. Yeah, yeah. But they're like the worst box of chocolates. Uh, if you're into dark chocolate or not. Yeah, but like roses, hello. There was Christmas coming up. I'm pretty sure we'll get all of it. <laughs> Uh, box of roses now. <laughs> so, how about we we finish this and then you can go and get your box of roses? 
with the picture. I may still have some Scots clan knocking about somewhere. <laughs> so as always, guys, um, we will now rank the story out of five. And after last week's your Grand Canyon of a fucking gap between the two of us. <laughs> Which Paul commented on. He was like, it's yeah. a new record. It's two. Oh my God, it's amazing. Um, so let's see if we're closer or if we're further afield on this one. So do you want to go first or will I go first? Uh, I'll go first. Okay. So overall, this story is well paced. It has mm-hmm. a good supporting cast and it has an interesting villain. Mm-hmm. All fantastic. Mm-hmm. I really quite enjoyed the story. One thing I found is that the episodes seemed longer, but not in a bad way. Yeah. Like you're there going, oh my God, so much has happened. And it's still only episode one. Mm-hmm. Which is great. Oh, that was fantastic. I think we have to see a lot of the core components of our main characters. Not always for the better, mm-hmm. in the case of some of them. But we did get to see the core components. The Brigadier is the Brigadier. This is what we're used to. This is what we get. The Doctor, for better or worse, is the Doctor. Yates is an asshole. Benton is Benton. <laughs> I was going to say, Yates is a prick. Benton is Benton. Benton, you know, Benton is, you know, chivalrous and willing to get stuck in and, you know, a little bit of the humour behind him or whatever. And Joe is courageous and scared, but still going forward. And I think mm. a lot of that comes to the fact that this was written by Barry Letts. Mm. It was written by the producer who knows these characters inside out and back to front. It's the one thing that all of the actors said was that they really felt they could get their teeth stuck into this one because there was a lot of their character in it because it was written by Barry. The way the characters speak is the way those characters speak. It makes sense for those characters because it was written by Barry. All that was fantastic. Hmm. However, there is a however. I didn't give this story a five. I'm going to say it right now. Mm-hmm. The Doctor's attitude to Joe. Fuck that shit. Yates calling Joe a little idiot and then calling her an idiot to her face. Fuck that shit. I had put in the way the Master interacted with us all, but I'm going to remove that because that actually didn't bother me as much. The power of love ending. Mm. And the fact they had this whole technical build up with the brig and Osgood and like, you know, the brig defending Osgood and them trying to work it out. And then, yeah, it gets them into the area, but then it's not used in the end. I thought that was a waste. I thought there was a way to use that to come back again at the end that I think would have worked better. Like... We've often seen stories, like we've often seen stories, and it's not just Doctor Who. Like you know, it's like it's other TV shows or movies where the science MacGuffin breaks, and they come up with some other logical way to win the day. Hmm. I had no problem with the science MacGuffin breaking, nope. but I do agree with you that the power of love ending just brought the whole thing to a bit of a fucking screaming halt. Yeah, and like. Even if they had done, and the thing is, the way they have Joe reacting, going, "I did," yeah. as if she wasn't fucking in the room, and didn't see the reaction that he had. But even if like you had Joe saying, "I didn't do it for the world, I did it for you," do you know? Like Joe didn't know that would save everybody. She just did it for him. At least acknowledge that. Hmm. Do you know? So for me, 
I thought it was a fantastic story. I can understand why so many people love it. Those three big things, though, the Doctor's attitude, calling Joe a little idiot, and the power of love ending, brought down to a 4.25 for me. All right. Cool. So, it's my turn to be the nasty one this time. <laughs> okay. So, all right. I love the pacing of the story. And, and like this is the thing, like, and it's happened before, where I love the story, and I will always recommend it to people. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a lot of fucking issues in it. All right? Such as, like, uh, a great example of that is going all the way back to the sense rights. I love the concept of the sense rights, but the ending is fucking rushed, and there's some really just kind of stupid shit that happens in it as well. Here's the exact We needed same. Barbara in more of that story. It would have been yeah. solved in four episodes. Oh, look, well, we've agreed that she's keeping fucking poor Virgil occupy, <laughs> like, company on Thunderbird 5. Poor bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Can I come down yet? No, you stay up there, Virgil. Uh, so... Um, I, know, I I love the pacing and keeping us out to the very end is just a fucking masterstroke. It's so so good. I love the whole countryside occult factor. It's great. I'm I I'm into spooky shit, so like you know I love mm. anything that. I like the whole science versus magic thing, and I'm actually mm. very surprised that the uh your know, Clark's law wasn't mm. mentioned once. I'm surprised that too. Yeah. And because I had to look it up to see, because like obviously Clark wrote these laws back in like the late fifties, hmm. so like it, it like it's right there, it's on the table. Just take it. Yeah. What, what's the official? What's the actual quote? I, I know uh, in theory it's it, um, it any, any significantly advanced scientific te- technology will is, appear as magic. Is in, in is indistinguishable from magic. I think that's what it is. Yeah. I don't get why the doctor didn't just say that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I'll just look it up there, okay? Because that's essentially what the story was about. Like, do do I? I'm just kind of thinking about it, right? Is yeah, when a, when a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible. No, 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 that's not. Sorry, Clark, Clark's tree laws. Okay, one second. Yeah, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Okay. I was like, I fucking love science fiction. Like, I really do, because it's just, oh, it's wonderful. Um, But, like, it was right there on the table. Like, very low-hanging fruit, you know, for a story like this. Um, And, like, I love, you know, a story where Benton is. Benton, I'm always on board with it. As you know, I always look for a good reason to like a companion. And Mm -hmm. I get it here with Jo in spades. Like, she's great. Like, she's been on... I think the clause of access is a is an unfortunate road bump in an otherwise steady stream because like she was great in the mind of evil, she was really good in the colony in space, and she was really really good here. Mm. Uh, but I didn't like the doctor a whole lot in this. Mm. Yates, as I've said before, sometimes I think Yates just takes screen time away from Benton, uh, <laughs> which yeah. and like again I want to like the guy, but I'm just like even going back to when I read the fucking books. Yates, there was just something about Yates's character that I wasn't really into, mm. and I don't really like the I don't really like it here, like either. Um, I was like, I'm really big into people giving thanks where thanks is fucking due, especially when it's like the Doctor and companion dynamic, and that's not present here at all. Mm. But the ending just makes no kind of fucking sense because like there's no build up to say 
illogical choices are his weakness. Yeah. There's, there's, there's no... We've been told the entire time is that the machine will reduce the heat barrier and also affect Azal in some way, shape, or form that he can be weakened to, to the technology they have at hand. Mm. But that doesn't make Azal a computer. It just no. makes him very, you know, good at science to whatever thing he has. So Joe, you know, putting herself in the firing line. Noble act shouldn't be a resolution. On unless the thing is a computer, shouldn't be a resolution. Um, also, the master's escape, it was just it just looks so bad. Like <laughs> Benton gets distracted by unit troops arriving. The master throws his cape over him. Benton falls to the floor like a fucking you know startled goldfish. And like even like the master, like you know, he gets into Bessie and he drives very slowly away. And the ma- the doctor then just takes over and again it's just it's almost like a kid on a merry go round. <laughs> he just looks so. I I was thinking about the master's cloak because I recently listened to um, Heroes, the Stephen Fry mm-hmm. book about Greek heroes. Yeah, and I was like, is it meant to be like Hercules's cloak that has like um, the centaur? Oh, the blood on the inside of it that drives Hercules insane. Yeah. <laughs> like, was it meant to be something like that? Oh, or is Benton just afraid of the dark? Pass. I, I don't know. Or just heavy fabrics. <laughs> Fuck, it's nylon. <laughs> um, like, so that kind of... That, like, that whole ending, took a, for me, took an awful lot of steam out mm. of like an otherwise really, really good story. And the Doctor's attitude in this... Like I, I call even on doctors that I like, I call bullshit when I see bullshit. Mm. So I've gone with three point seven five because I it's it's definitely more than a three point five, mm. but I didn't think it was worthy of the four with a lot of the stupid stuff and the attitudes of some of the characters. So okay. I've gone with a, I've gone with a three point seven five, which as we've said is a pretty respectable score, but I I just couldn't give it the four. <laughs> So, given the differences in scoring we've had all oh, yeah, season long, it's, it's season and also time. given the little bit of a, although it's not as much of a rip as a up and down as I thought originally, it is a bit of one. So, our average is, so the average for season eight as a whole mm-hmm. is 3.45. All right. Your average is 3.65. My average is 3.25. That. Mm. <laughs> that 2.5 from Colony in Space has yeah. really kicked my average's ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, and like, but I, like, like, I've said it, I said it on air, and I said it to Paul as well when he messaged us about us. Like, I loved doing Colony because it was one of my favorite episodes that we recorded. Not, mm. not just the story, but the actual the debate that we had over it. So, um, and like here, I think we had a really good debate as well because, or just a really good discussion about stuff. So that puts season eight at the third lowest seasonal average. Ooh. So the lowest was season two, unsurprising. You mean season three? Season three, yeah. I, I always read these numbers wrong. So yeah. lowest was season three, unsurprisingly, which mm-hmm. is Galaxy Four. The Massacre, the Ark, the Confighters, and so on. Then the next one we have is Season 6, 
which was the 3.39 Dominators, Mind Robber, Invasion, Crotons, Seeds mm. of Death, Space Pirates, and War Games. And now we have Season 8 with a 3.45. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a bit of a drop compared to last season. Like Season yeah. 7 was a 4.63. Season 7 was a a rocker of a season like yeah um but that's not to say that all of these episodes are bad like you know you gave colony in space a 4.5 i gave this one a 4.25 mm-hmm. other than that everything is in and around the threes except for you gave clause of access a 2.5 and i gave colony a 2.5 so yeah like i don't think that there was one in this story like where we both were like ugh no, no. Maybe I think maybe. No, because like Mind of Evil, I gave it three, but you gave it three point seven five, which is a very respectable showing. So, yeah. No, I think this season was a lot of what was our personal preference. Yeah. And what did we take away from the stories? And that's where our mm-hmm. scores were so drastically different this season. Mm-hmm. And even like, I mean, I say drastically different, like. You know, you gave mine to be the 3.75, I gave it a 3. Yeah. You gave Clause of Access a 2.5, I gave it a 3. <laughs> you gave Colony in Space a 4.5, I gave it a 2.5. Like, those are where the differences lie. And I think a lot of that is down to personal preference as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we see in them. But hey, that's why we do this. And yes, also to make comments that will make people like Paul laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and Dan as well. <laughs> oh, we always yeah. say Paul. Hi, Dan. Yeah. We never hi, do Dan. hi, Dan. <laughs> um... And Norm and Earl. And, and Norm and Earl and Shane <laughs> well, and everybody Shane. else. Yeah. <laughs> um, and John. Hi, John. Hi, um, so, end of season eight. Mm-hmm. We will not have a new episode next week. Nope. Because I will not be here to record it. Instead, we'll be back in two weeks' time with the opening story for season nine, which is Day of the Daleks. And what a date will be. <laughs> Talk to them. Bye. Bye.